There's a reason they call it the fire service. It's a service we we provide. We're there to buy people another birthday, another anniversary. We're in the people business. Mm. And if you don't have that in you, then you're never going to get the rest of the stuff. Firehouse Vigilance presents the Weekly Scrap, a podcast dedicated to the never-ending fight against complacency. Corley Moore, Firehouse Vigilance, just wanted to step in here before we start the actual interview and let everybody know that when we recorded this live, that we had a lot of internet issues that night. We actually restarted the interview three different times trying to keep it going that night before we finally called it quits and then two days later wrapped up the interview. So there are points where it's a little disjointed, but I edited it together and I hope you enjoy. Here we go. Corley Moore, Firehouse Vigilance, it is weekly scrap. Number 132. My guest this evening is Chief David Rhodes. He is a 37-year fire service veteran, retired from Atlanta Fire Department. He is a chief elder for the Georgia Smoke Diver Program. Uh, You want to talk about FDIC Advisory Board, Executive Advisory Board, Hands-On Trading Coordinator, Editorial Advisor at Fire Engineering Magazine, Fire Apparatus Equipment Magazine, author of the Hump Day SOS, column for Fire Rescue Magazine. He instructs. He teaches. He speaks across the country. ULFSRI member. Excuse me. I got to sneeze. Firefighter, Air Coalition member. He is president. <coughs> Pardon me. He is president of Rhodes Consultants. And I believe me, I could sit here and keep reading on and on. But the man's career and pedigree is unbelievable. And most importantly, so many people who I respect and look up to speak about this man with reverence and respect which is the greatest resume resume that I think you could have. So Chief David Rhodes, it is my pleasure to have you as a guest for episode number 132 of The Scrap. Awesome. Thanks for having me, man. I've been looking forward to it for a couple of months now. It's going to be a good time, man. I'm very excited. Is there anything I missed in the intro? Anything you would like to add? No, other than uh, it's tough getting old. It is past my bedtime, but I'm willing to stay up till midnight if that's what it takes to get get all the questions answered beautiful beautiful i took a nap i took a nap before the uh before the show so i should be good i love it and we've got people already chiming in bovis said smoke daddy richard bue said good evening cod dustin martinez said yes so much yeah, Robbie Townsend said smoke. There's so many people saying smoke. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cheers from Old Town, Old Town Fools, Southern California. So many people chiming in right now. I am hiding a lot of spam that is coming at you. Not, nothing to do with you, just to do with I got to figure out how to handle people. Uh, 100%, man. And someone said, Justin hey. Fraze said, sweet hat. <laughs> Exit through the gift shop. Absolutely. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay. If you have questions, audience, please get your questions ready and primed for Chief David Rhodes. Uh, If you find value in the scrap and you want to keep it going, go to firehousevigilance.com. Support it. I don't ever want to read ad copy here, so I don't ever want to do it live. Uh, Kyle Romagus, Chief Kyle Romagus is the curator of the questions. When you post questions, he's going to pull them out. He's going to throw them on my laptop so I can find them and throw it at, uh, hold on one second. Tell him not to call any of the golf questions. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. And other than that, he is the producer. I say he's the unofficial producer of the scrap. Uh, so I wanted to lead off right out the mm-hmm. gate. Number one, I did a lot of research as you were coming on, and I wanted to talk to you about a lot of things. And, of course, the uh, audience is going to throw a ton at you. So sure. what sure. I wanted to ask you is this. Right out the gate, I read The Fire Science for Dummies. And one of the things about that, anybody could have written a article called Fire Science for Dummies. Anybody could have done it. But you said it's fire science, fire science for dummies like me. And, brother, that, that just the name of it shows the humility associated with getting that message out. And I wanted, to, I wanted to point that out. And there's some quotes I wanted to bring out from it. So the first one I said, judging other departments' tactics without understanding the differences in construction, hazards, and resources needed is a mistake. So I just wanted to just throw that at you and start talking right there. Yeah, so uh, I got introduced to, uh, to the UL ventilation study. It was the the horizontal ventilation study when uh, Steve Kerber came to Atlanta and did a class. I had already read the the study when it was released and there was a local department that immediately changed their tactics and said that they would no longer ventilate. And uh, of course that drove me nuts, but I sat through Steve's class. It was, it was a phenomenal class. And, uh, um, but being an Atlanta urban firefighter and, and, my uh, best times on the on the department were were tillering on a truck, and I got to do a lot of roof ventilation and stuff. And so naturally, I felt that uh, that roof ventilation was the secret to all successful fire operations. So I asked him when the when the ventil- when the vertical ventilation study was going to be done. He invited me on to the panel, and uh, I got up there and sat in the room with. 30 firefighters from around the country. Um, and as we went around the room and sort of went over our practices and stuff, I was floored at the departments that did not get on roofs for various reasons. I immediately thought, Oh, well, they're, you know, they got way too over safety conscious or whatever and all. But then, then, you know, talking to them at break, you start realizing, uh, you know, like uh, with New York and residential roofs, you know, the roofs are super steep because of the snow. So the roofs that New York firefighters would not get on are the same roofs that we wouldn't get on in Atlanta. Maybe they're Slade or uh, Terracotta. The Phoenix guys were, you know, talking about their clay roofs and stuff. So so it kind of opened my eyes a little bit that, uh, you know, all just like politics, all firefighting is local. And uh, beautiful. And then as we as we c- completed the vertical ventilation uh, study, it was super, super eye opening uh, to me. Some of the things that I learned that uh, I just thought I was a, the biggest dummy in the world. And uh, specifically, the biggest one was I had taught Vent Inner Search since probably 1986 or so, and it had been a tactic that was taught in smoke divers. It had been a tactic we taught in in our uh, basic firefighter training at the state and, and, and all. So um, as we got into the ventilation and started talking about opening the front door being ventilation and that that let air in, well, that had never connected in my brain because I was never taught I was now, I mean, I was taught vent, take the window, enter, search, shut the door, 
you know, block the airflow. We didn't know what flow path was back then, but right. we, you know, it was convection, convection currents to us. But uh, all that clicked because it was in context. But opening the front door never clicked to me that it was ventilation. And I was like, here I was a battalion chief commanding, you know, fires. And I'm like, holy crap. How dumb can you be not to put those pieces together? But it just took that to put it in context. And then, of course, you know, uh, I went from there. But that was probably the biggest uh, humbling experience to think that, uh, um, you know, I didn't even consider that. And then I went further to explain, uh, you know, Atlanta tactics and stuff. And what I found out is accidentally we were doing things right. We, we had coordinated fire attack and it was strictly because of our staffing levels. And, uh, you know, we sent our, our trucks or real trucks and they search and, and, uh, no water on them. You know, it's strictly search overhaul, uh, ventilation, that type of work. And so we were always sending a truck crew t- to the roof and there was always an engine company or two taking a line in and just for sheer uh, because we had the staffing, it worked out to where it was always coordinated. And uh, I had made the statement to Kerber that we had, I, I had personally never been on a scene and lost a structure that had a hole cut in the roof. And, and that was, tr- that was true, but I absolutely gave the hose line no credit right. <laughs> because, because I was on the roof cutting the hole i thought i was in me and, and the crew were the ones that were saving the day so uh yeah. so yeah so I, I learned that we were accidentally doing things right so the other thing we would do is pile enough people in front of the door that we would cut off the oxygen just shut the flow path down well, with bodies yeah we didn't need door control because there was always at least seven people standing in the door that was blocking the air so we never had any issues with that either Beautiful. so but yeah it was pretty humbling uh it's a very humbling experience to to hear from those people all over the country and realize, hey, you know, your little corner of the world is is your tactics, your deal. And, uh, you know, if you, if you pull up and and you got, you know, if you're by yourself or you have two people um, and you knock that fire down from from outside and can, can render it to where you can go, you know, take it from free burning to incipient or whatever, the man, there's no harm in that. You do what you have to do based on the resources you have. And so that was a that was another thing. Not everybody is Atlanta or LA or or a big urban department with staffing. And and those all of those departments have their own problems too. But uh, the majority of the fire service is running two and three person, you know, uh companies and some one. So you got to do what you have to do. Beautiful. Beautiful. The uh Next quote I want to throw at you, which is right. It's, it's the, it's the following sentence after the same one you wrote in that first, uh, episode one of that fire science for dummies like me, there is no one magic tactic that works in every situation, right? That's your quote. And then in parentheses at the end, you said, except water. And I love that, man. I absolutely love that. So I'll give you a minute to preach on that if you want. Yeah. Uh, so again, back. I remember vividly as a as a firefighter at Station Two in Atlanta, and when I say we were we were taught to never, ever under any circumstances attack the fire 
from the burning side. You always went from the unburned side to the burned side to to push the fire, uh, you know, back onto itself or what have you. Right. And uh, I mean, I, I heard this from all of my mentors and, and stuff back, you know, from from 85 all, all the way up, you know, through the 90s and stuff. And so as much as we could, we tried to do that. But uh, it's one particular fire. Um, pretty tight little neighborhood, probably probably less than 10 feet in between houses. Okay. And uh, the front is just absolutely rocking and rolling. Fire is blowing out the front porch uh, 10, 15 feet into the air. So I'm driving uh, that day. I was, I was driving the engine, and uh, we had pulled just past. And the guys start stretching the uh, skid load down between the houses. And it's about, you know, the houses are probably about 60 feet deep on the lots. There's usually a little four foot chain link fence at the very back that's locked with a padlock. They have to climb over the fence. There's a couple pit bulls chained in the backyard. They go on to the back porch, uh, which is the most heavily fortified door in the house. And so while they're stretching and I'm waiting on them to tell me to charge the line, you know, I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. I am absolutely going nuts because this fire is just raging. And so, uh, in just a uh, moment of just sheer break all the rules and all, I pulled a line off and hit the fire. Uh, and I was the only one in the front yard. Uh, I was the only one on the street. I was pumping the truck and the other units hadn't got there yet. So I not, I, I mean, I probably didn't flow a hundred gallons uh, and knocked 90% of the fire mm. out. Um, and then I immediately started saying, Oh my God, what have I done? I have screwed up now. I have probably burnt, burned them up or I've I've pushed fire through the house. Well, I mean, they're not even in there because I haven't even charged their line yet. And about the time I knocked it down, they said, charge the line, charge the line. You know, they came through. I picked up my line, wadded it up, and threw it in a compartment so nobody could see it as the other units were arriving, just knowing if anybody ever found out I was going to be written up, uh, you know, and tormented and stuff. So as the guys finished, you know, they came out and stuff, I'm like, so how bad was it in there? Like, I mean, is the whole structure burn up? And they were like, no, nah, it's just the front room, you know? And I'm like, just the front room? And they're like, yeah. Yeah, so I end up going in, and there's absolutely no fire damage anywhere in the house, except the front room is totally burnt out, and then all the fire was venting out the window, which wow. caught the uh, exterior and the porch on fire and all that stuff. So uh, I called up, you know, after we got back. Still, mom was a word. We didn't talk about it. Right. I never told told anybody. So I called up one of the, the guys who trained me from my, from my old department, um, Conyers, I called old Joel Yoder, who was, you know, one of my mentors there and trainers. And I told him what happened. And I said, so what do you think? And he goes, man, he goes, the modern nozzles flow so much water. He said, you really don't have to worry about which side you're, you're coming in for the most part. He goes, if if you got something like that, he goes, man, you can knock all that exterior fire down and and it's no issue at all. The fire is going to, going to go out if you, if you get the water on it. Now, obviously, you know, there's search concerns and we want to get in there as fast as we can. Right. But back back to that old 
whole, you know, comparison. If you're, if you're there by yourself or, or you don't have, you know, a crew, then, uh, then put water on it. Water makes it all better, you know? And I mean, you need to put it on correctly. You need to be, you know, with a, with a straight or a solid stream with very little nozzle movement so that you're not pushing air, uh, in, uh, and you don't definitely don't want to open a fog nozzle up and, and, and that's the same as turning a fan on, you know, from, from outside. But, but, uh, I think back to, uh, another incident where a Georgia firefighter, uh, was killed in the line of duty, super, super knowledgeable instructor and all. And, uh, you know, talking to some of the guys on the scene, they were afraid to flow water, uh, you know, after the, the collapse occurred because of, you know, I mean, it was just drilled in our head that we did not, did not do that. And, uh, and you, you know, I'm not saying you should do it every single time or anything. Right. That's definitely not it. But, um, you know, if, if that's, if that's all you got, that's all you got. And water's, water's going to make things better 99.9% of the time. Um, but, but you can't just stop there. Uh, uh, a lot of these, a lot of these folks have totally misinterpreted, uh, some of the studies. And, uh, one of my favorite lines is, uh, the biggest problem with a transitional attack is the failure to transition. So if all you do is, is hit it hard from the yard and that's it, then that's, that's not really a, a, a tactic unless you're totally in a defensive mode, right but, but. Um, you know, if you're going to start, everybody's, everybody has knocked fire back into the structure from the front door. If it was, if it was blowing out the front door and, and you just keep moving, you keep moving to the fire. Uh, you don't stop. So beautiful. That's, that's where that came from. Let's see what else I pulled out. And I love this. This was, I think from, uh, might be episode three of, or, uh, part three of the fire science for dummies like me. That you wrote, which is, we all know that there are some among us who have never wanted to go inside a burning building. Did science hand them the shield they have been looking for? I don't think so. Not if you use some common sense, have an agenda that puts the victim first, know your job, function confidently in a highly complex risk managed attack. The best risk management is competence, not avoidance. So yep. I, w- I wanted to throw that at you. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of departments, uh, mainly their administrations jumped all over the parts of, uh, some of the research that they, you know, I guess they were looking for a confirmation bias and something and that, uh, you know, there's a lot of policies, uh, out there across the country is like, we will not go interior on a vacant building. well, how do you know it's vacant? Right. Uh, I hate the term vacant building. Um, and of course being in an urban environment, most, you know, my 30 for 30 years of my career, um, there weren't, there were rarely vacant buildings. There was usually somebody in there. Now they might not have been supposed to, might not have supposed to have been in there, but there were, you know, usually either homeless or, or, uh, somebody in there messing around that that shouldn't have been in there. But um, there has to be a distinction between a derelict uh, building that is rotten, that is a danger to be in when it's not on fire versus just a vacant, uh, vacant structure. So, I mean, a vacant structure could be a house for sale, 
Um, a lot of a lot of uh, urban departments have a vacant problem, so you got to be on top of that and know which ones are uh, are rotten. And even even the uh, rotten ones, you know, if you see somebody, uh, you, you're going to at least try to do what you can to get them out. I'm not saying you wouldn't go in it, but uh, circumstances dictate. So, um, I hate to see those policies that handcuff the crews that you know say we want fight fire interior on a vacant building because you know you're taking decision making out of their hands and uh my thing is train them to make good decisions and uh if you teach them the fire science you teach them fire um behavior you teach them building construction you teach them tactics and you train and they're proficient with their equipment um that will allow you to safely operate and be the most aggressive firefighter there is out there. Beautiful. Um, you don't want to be a, uh, you know, you don't want to be dumb aggressive where, you know, you, you got fire blowing out a window, you throw the nozzle in the window, then climb in the window and then open the nozzle. Uh, but you know, you just got to use some common sense and, uh, um, Get in there. Definitely put the victim first. You can't. You can't find a victim. You're, you're. You're not going to find a victim outside. Uh, nine times out of or ninety nine times out of a hundred, there might they might have jumped out a window or, uh, in one case I had jumped in a swimming pool, um, while they were on fire. But um, yeah. But uh, uh, you got to get in there. And and you know if you're if you're if you're taking an attack line, and you're moving in. You know, you might accidentally run over a victim, <laughs> not even trying yes. to search. You're just you're just advancing the hose to the fire. There's a good chance that you're in the main path of egress and there may be a victim right there at the front door or the side door or whatever that main path of egress is. So you always got to you always got to be searching uh, no matter what you're doing. Thousand we call it we call the hose line the boat anchor because you can't move very fast. But uh, um but it can be done, you know. Again, you gotta you gotta adapt your tactics to the to the staffing and resources you have. Tons of comments coming at you. I'm just gonna pick some highlights. I'm gonna scroll through. There's been like a hundred comments come out while you were while you were preaching, and um, there's a boom from Smoothbore Cartel. Wet stuff on the red stuff. That's the basics. Josh Folk said it. Greg went, Wyant said water wins. And he said 15 slash 16. I'm saying, I'm, I'm guessing he's saying that's a ratio of how many times it wins or he's saying the smooth bore. But anyway, that's a joke. I'm sorry. Uh, Ryan, that's, yeah, that's probably. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan King said flow early, flow often. Uh, yeah, I'm just throwing Robbie Townsend chiming in. Uh, amens, facts. There, uh, Dustin Martinez says those who want to find reasons to stay outside will find them. And he's 100% correct in that. That's what we're talking about. Uh, Brian Madsen said the building is a derelict structure. It's not vacant until we clear it. And after we exit, I love this one, Dustin, again, sorry, Dustin, I'm picking on you too many look for protocol based decision-making to avoid actual thinking. And I think that's a, that's a huge thing we can talk about. So trying to throw uh, a lot at you. And there's some people that threw in some other ratios, like a seven slash eight. I'm not sure if they're, uh, what they're saying, but no, um, uh, coming at you from Kyle Romings, I got the first question from the audience, which is from uh, Smoothbore Cartel himself. He said, Chief, if you could roll back time and rewrite any of the UL studies, 
what would you change? Or are there any topics that have not been covered in the studies that you would like to see covered? Um, so I don't, I don't think I would change, uh, any of the studies themselves. I think, um, early on, like back to the horizontal ventilation and the vertical ventilation, UL was like two or three people. Um, and they were all, um, you know, uh, they were, they were all, they were doing everything. So they were designing the experiments. Of course we had the, we had the panels, but I think what happened in the beginning is getting the information out there and the studies were put out there, but UL didn't have the staff to really control the the narrative of it. So all these different people took pieces and started their own interpretation and, uh, um, you know, it went crazy and uh, it, it created a couple, you know, it definitely split factions and there were people that were just raging mad and, uh, you know, they would have, they would have killed a, a UL scientist if they had have seen one, <laughs> you know, out there, they didn't, you know, they didn't give them any credit for all of them were fire, you know, in the fire service. And I actually did a, I actually did a meme about them and it had, uh, it was a stagecoach and uh, inside it, on the side of the stagecoach, it said UL had the UL label on it. Right. And there were arrows. There were Indian arrows uh, all in the side of it, you know, like they were under attack in the old West. Right. And uh, in, inside was uh, Dan Madrakowski looking out in Kerber. And that was actually Photoshopped pictures of nice. them. And it said the pioneers always take the arrows. And so, uh, I mean, they were getting blasted, you know, these little guys, those little pencils aren't going to tell me how to fight fire. And, uh, you know, there was, there was legitimacy in some of the arguments. I mean, the, the best, you know, the best thing for, for science is for somebody to question it and, and make you study further. And, uh, I think one of my, one of my science for dummies was, uh, what was it? The shot heard around the world right. or, uh, and it was about pushing fire. Right. And, you know, um, I, I did a whole interview with Dan Madrakowski about pushing fire and where it came from. And he showed me the slide and, and all, and it was like, well, you said you could, then you, then you couldn't and back. And so, yeah, there was, there was some bad communication on, on a couple of things. That was probably the worst that got out there. But, uh, Man, you know, you fast forward five, six years, and now the staff is like 15 or 20 at UL. They have professional educators writing curriculum and doing the training. And you don't have that emotion uh, in it anymore because it's really not a threat. It's It's information. And, you know, one of the things that I, being on the board, I always say is we as, as, UL research need to present information versus telling people how to do things. So instead of telling you, this is the best tactic to use, we need to say, here's all the tactics we tested. Here's how they turned out. And, you know, you use what's 
what works best for you. And I think that's pretty much uh, been the message. There've been a few, mm. been a few folks out there that kind of got a little rogue and, you know, I always say, uh, here we go. This, this, this guy wants to be famous. So he's going to latch on to this right. piece and right. create his own, you know, uh, message and stuff. And so there were, there were a lot of people out there piggybacking off of pieces of information, but, um, that was probably the, that was probably the biggest mistake was just the, the rollout of information. Um, and it was, it was a double-edged sword. Do you get the information out quick? Because, Hey, look, here's what we found out. Or do you get it out in a way that is a training class that's, mm-hmm. that can be downloaded or whatever. And it took years to get to that point. Uh, and kudos to UL for putting the resources in. It's a non nonprofit on the on the fire research side, and uh, um, of course they get grants. But the the UL corporate puts in a lot of money uh, into the into the FSRI to make it work. Beautiful, brother. Great, great, great answers. Uh, I will get to the. I want to ask questions, but I got a lot of uh, right now. Cody Mark Landers wants to know if you're willing for a hard question here. Or not an easy can't be too hard. In your oh, opinion, let me say. Go ahead. Let, let me say too uh, on studies that uh, like to see. Or okay, actually, yeah. I'm, I'm highly involved in one right now, which is uh, um, training fire loads, uh, the fuel for training fires. Yes. and uh, we're doing a lot of experiments. Um, a lot of stuff we do at Smoke Divers. You know, we're sending up to to look at. But you know, there is a very there is a huge challenge in training of creating a realistic fire environment. Absolutely. Um, too often we've, you know, set three, three or four pallets on fire. We bring the, we bring the nozzle team in, they open the nozzle and the instructor goes, shut it off. Don't put my fire out. Right. Well, I mean, you're supposed to be learning how to put fire out. So you need to see the behavior. And of course the building doesn't, uh, you, you, it's very hard to get a burn building vent limited because of all the openings and, and stuff. So, uh, so we're working on a lot of stuff to figure out what's the best fuel to use, um, taking into consideration all the risk, the the exposures, the cancers, anything that ends in a zine, any chemical that has a zine at the end of it or, or E&E is uh, something that we're looking at. But, you know, we'll never be able to eliminate all risk. Right. And so what we're looking at is, you know, how do you stair step this thing? Uh, people laughed at Bullex when they when they came out with that digital fire panel. I don't know if you've seen that. I've seen, it's yeah, just, hit it with an nozzle you know, and it reacts. Heavy, heavy duty, yeah, it's a heavy duty looking little thing. And if you just turn it on in a in a room with no smoke, then you look at it, you're like, get out of here. But you smoke the room up, and that flicker of light looks tremendous i mean it looks great you hear the crackle and, and all that um I, I use it in in initial in initial training stuff and and uh logistically with a recruit class it's their first time search and give them the visual cues without the exposure but eventually you got to get to live fire you got to get to to burning things that create gases and create heat and create smoke and uh but how you don't have to do that every time um so you can stair step your training into those live fire evolutions uh you know you don't have to have 
the recruit in in hay smoke, you know, the very first time they're right. in a breathing apparatus. So you can so that's some of the recommendations and stuff that we're working on now. And and really the fuel load is huge because everybody knows the the OSB yeah. uh the thing big. is a big deal. And just let me say the importance of research. This was just something that was phenomenal. Uh California was required to um they could only use formaldehyde free OSB. So they were importing it from Canada. It costs twice as much. Um, and so we, we took the formaldehyde-free OSB in the lab and burned it and compared it to the regular OSB. And the formaldehyde-free OSB puts off more formaldehyde <laughs> when, it's, when it's burning than the regular OSB. Right. So don't jump on a cause before you have all the information all the information you know you need to you need to know um the reason it's called formaldehyde free is because it doesn't off gas in your house like the other so it does what it's intended to do okay just but not under burn burning it, conditions. it actually puts off more right right it what it wasn't formaldehyde free for fire training it was formaldehyde free for building construction <laughs> wow no no so, that's yeah when you burn it it put off more formaldehyde so, so that's the that, that right just that right there is the the value of research. So, what was I think it was Corey had a question. Who was it? Cody. Cody you was going to give no, me a no, hard no, question. No. Cody. No, I'm not. All right, sorry, hard. Cody. It's, it's not a, it's not a soft toss. In your opinion, what is the best way to get a department to change their outlook? Um, if a homeowner says the building is vacant, it's vacant. How can we get them to adopt a "it's not clear" till we say it's clear mentality? Um, and that's how to get the department. Yeah, just just the department the department mindset. Um, well, through you know through training, I mean, uh, this this rescue project um, that uh, Brian Brush is is putting together um, is a tremendous help for that. Um, you know, um, I went to a I went to an incident command briefing. Uh, in Savannah, Georgia, um, before a hurricane season or before, before a hurricane was supposed to come in. And the guy, the, the commander for the coast guard for that region got up and did a presentation. And it's the first thing out of his mouth after he introduced himself was a report of how many people had been rescued by the coast guard in that district in the last 12 months, how many vessels had been, uh, saved and then of course it went into the law enforcement side on how many seizures and all that stuff and i said man how come the fire service even at a local level at a local level but definitely at a national level how come you can't how come we can't say how many people were rescued in fires we know how many people died right in fires but how many people were rescued? And if you're if you subscribe to those those emails or you follow the Facebook page, heck, I get three or four notifications of people rescued every day. Absolutely. Uh, and and that's and I mean I'm sure Brian Brian if, if if he's out there can tell me the actual number. He's done a phenomenal report on it. But why is that not captured in our reporting system? I mean our. our uh, our, our national reporting system is way, way, way behind what we need to actually sell ourselves. And, uh, and I know they're working on it, uh, uh, with some of the new, new stuff and, uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll get everybody on board with the, with the new reporting stuff. But, uh, 
the key is, you know, show them, show your department that information of how many people were, were rescued. And, and I don't know what size department uh, you're with there, um, Cody, but there's definitely information out there. I, I can tell you that in, in my 36 years of active duty, um, it was very rare that someone was rescued in an occupied uh, structure. Um, the majority of the rescues that I recall being a part of were uh, vacant apartments, uh, vacant houses, uh, vacant buildings and stuff. And, and, of course, it just depends on your territory. And you touched on it beautiful. We have to – and they're starting to do it. We're, and that's Brian's whole point with the, the, uh, his, his, his doctorate was we have to start recording our wins. And so we Absolutely. have to document them. We're so good at tracking we our do losses. It. Well, and we do it, you know, on the EMS side, we do pretty good with, uh, like, CPR saves, cardiac saves and stuff. I won't say we're great at it, but uh, we can pull those numbers quicker than we can because there's nowhere on the report that says how many lives were saved, you know? No, 100%. All right, next question coming at you. This one's coming at you from Shane Bentley right down there in your neck of the woods. I'm trying to get that to go away. Go away. All right. Oh, yeah. Chief, hey, Shane. how do you counteract all the people that are in higher power or the so-called decision makers that look for reasons to politically remove the ones that care about aggressively training to be the best you can be? Yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, it's, I found out over the years it's true in any organization. Those people that stand out, that, that put it out there, put it all in line, they really have heart and soul, their passions into it. Um, you know, you're even though you don't want to be, you're a threat because right. your passion, your competence, you are exposing incompetence without even trying to. Um, you know, you're, you're working hard and you're doing things and you're accomplishing things. And when you do that, you're going to get, you're going to get shot at and, uh, people are going to attack you and, uh, you got to have thick skin. You just got to keep, keep moving forward, doing what you're doing. Um, you know, sometimes you got to back up and realize you can't change the whole organization, but you can control what's in your four walls. Uh, you know, concentrate on your company. And, uh, my biggest advice to folks and folks struggle with this all the time is when you, when you feel like, you know, absolute crap, you're down uh, on your department or whatever, instead of sitting there and uh, throwing a pity party, get up and do something for somebody else. Uh, go hold another training class. Go, uh, you know, read a book. Uh, uh, I had this exact conversation with Alan Brunacini years ago, and uh, he started grinning, and he said, you know, they came after me, too when he was coming up through the ranks and uh, he said, he said that he got banished to some horrible assignment. And uh, I don't know why I don't, I can't remember which station it was or whatever. And he said, so while I was there, I wrote incident command. Oh, wow. The book. So, you know, uh, I wrote about it and uh, um, pass it on three I got a little chapter called Surviving Bad Leadership, which I think we're going to get into a little bit later. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of turned it into a game, man. I, uh, I'm i like, you know, I'm going to eat your soul because you, you're, you're not going to you're not going to 
destroy my passion for the job. Maybe I got to take my passion somewhere else. Maybe right. I got to be involved in smoke divers or FDIC or, or, you know, my own little training, training conference or whatever. Everybody needs an outlet. And, and those who are, are into servant leadership and want to pass things on, you know, you got to have that outlet. So, uh, um, at, at worst, look outside your department to, uh, to fulfill those needs. But if you can't, then, you know, do what you can for the guy working beside you today. And maybe that's all you can do, but that's, that's awesome. You know, you, you can't change it overnight, but, uh, you know, I look back at all the struggles I had in Atlanta and, uh, you know, a lot of the people that I trained are, are chiefs and some of them, some of them that were my rookies are, are already promoted higher than I ever went, you know, they're assistant chiefs or, or deputy chiefs. So, uh, you know, um, just Beautiful. do what you can and, and keep rolling. Don't give up. Beautiful answer. And I want to tell everybody, thank you guys for, for jumping back in. Um, <laughs> I don't even, it's never happened before in the history of the scrap where it just crashed. It crashed and the phone crashed. That's always been my backup is the phone. So it's weird for just both of them to die at once. I don't know what's going on. We'll blame COVID because that's what everybody seems to do is just say, Hey, it's going to be eight weeks till you can get something. Just blame COVID. So. All that being said, we're going to try and fight through it. There is still issues. There's still some audio and, and freezes. But if it keeps on working, if it gets to the point where it's unwatchable, we'll call it a night. But right now, we're powering through. So um, I want to throw this one at you because it ties right into the next article I wanted to, I researched on you, which is the T-shirt management. And Mike Galliano earlier before the crash said, Hey, Rhodesy, love you, my man. Please explain why T-shirts are a priority over such silly things as leadership, fire ground decision-making, and tactical proficiency. Yeah, so uh, years ago, I don't even know how many now. It's probably been, it was probably around 2014. Um, Somebody sent me a link to a video of a couple of guys in, um, I think it was Montgomery, Alabama, and they had a little spoof video. A couple guys were singing. Have you seen it? It's a couple guys are singing. It's still out there. And uh, they were dressed up like the uh, uh, soggy bottom boys, right? Off of uh, Brother Where Art Thou? <laughs> right, and and the guy could actually sing really well. The guy could actually sing really well. He sounded just like him. The acoustics in the bay were wonderful, and. Uh, they they got to this it was and it was all about their chief and uh different things and one of they had a pile of t-shirts i mean it was a mountain and uh one of the lines i can't remember how it fit in but it was perfect and he says shirts this was yeah they were holding up this shirt and they would throw it say the say the line hands say and the line pull up another one say the line one more time the t-shirt line Sorry, it, it spazzed out. Oh, it, it was. Yeah, he said so many. He said so many shirts. Don't know which one to wear. Nice. And like the chief had changed the logo, and they were all getting in trouble and all. So, I kind of kept that in the back of my mind, and just hearing stories from teaching around and stuff, um, sort of inspired the article T-shirt management, which was, um, it got me in a lot of trouble, <laughs> even though I did not ever once write an article where I identified where I worked. Um, uh, and the article was actually had nothing to do with my organization. It was the fire department in general, but, uh, um, 
so many people would talk about how, you know, they were, their chiefs were so worried about them wearing the wrong t-shirt. You know, they would have a company t-shirt or whatever. So if you actually read the article, the article is equally critical of firefighters as it is of the administration. Absolutely. It's a great article. So it, you know, it it laid out, you know, why are t-shirts so bad? Because everybody in the, all the guys love a t-shirt, you know, good old hundred percent cotton t-shirt. Uh, and there's all these dumb rules. Like you can only wear it when the temperature is above such and such a degrees or, or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, and all the guys are like, you know, the citizens don't care. Like when you show up at four o'clock in the morning, what t-shirt you got on. It's uh, like we put all this emphasis on, on what t-shirt we have. On. And then, I, then I was, equally as critical of the guys because let's say that you you are allowed uh, to wear a t-shirt, then the guys are going to wear the most bleached out one that has holes Holes, under the arms and looks like a rag, you know, and it's, and it's like, yeah. And it's like, dude, you know, I mean, if you're allowed to wear it, at least wear a good one, you know, so that you don't open yourself up uh, for that criticism. But, uh, yeah, um, there. I, I always say, if you don't know what to manage, then you manage what you wear. And uh, um, it's so easy to be a uniform Nazi and be on people about everything. Um, but the bottom line is, I mean, it is a very, very labor-intensive, hard, physically demanding job. Now, there is a time to look sharp and be pristine, but being on duty running calls is not that time. Right on. Uh, you need something that is comfortable. And I came from the days of polyester uniforms and the shiny chloroform shoes. And when we finally went and were able to get a pair of Rocky boots for the first time, like around 1987, 1988, man, we thought we had, had gone to heaven that we didn't have to wear those freaking shiny Chloroform leather, yeah. shoes. And then look at the cops. I mean, the cops wore the same thing, right? And they're, they're in foot chases trying to chase people down. And these they got polyester buttoned up stuff with all the metal and all. And so, uh, you know, the sew on patches, the Nomex, all that stuff. But there's nothing wrong with a 100% cotton t shirt. Um, and, uh, you know, that's like, why are we focused on this little bitty minuscule stuff that nobody really cares about? Obviously you got to have discipline in an organization and you got to have a chain of command. But uh, I think some people take it a little bit too far. And, and again, you could go burn down a house, miss your search, miss a victim. Nobody says anything, but if you got on the wrong t-shirt, they're going to write you up after the fire. So uh, that's where that came from. Uh, Actually, I was for those of you who don't know, I was actually fired uh, in Atlanta over that article for 30 days. But uh, I came I came back uh, and was was promptly demoted because I was in in a uh, appointed position for a couple of years, but but ended up getting promoted back. And uh, that's about all I can say about it. I'm not allowed to uh, talk about the settlement. So, uh, <laughs> so awesome, um, man. That's such a yeah. great story, man. I really do love it. And, uh, 
that's it. That that is what I have for my my uh, research I did on your articles. Because every time I have a guest on, I ask them what would you like to talk about, and they send me their they send me their topics, and then I go and research them and I ask my questions that I want to ask. And now I'm actually getting to the actual actual uh, question or stuff that that Chief Rhodes wanted to bring up and talk about. So uh, welcome to the party and everything. And there's been a ton of technical issues. If you posted a question you wanted to answer to, hey. Everybody, it's gone because we relaunched. Everything on the other one was gone. This is a brand new one. So post your questions for Chief Rhodes if you want them answered. All right. I'm throwing, I'm going right into smoke divers because uh, that is one of the first things you put in the email when I said topics to talk about. And I really want to touch on perception. What is it according to you mm-hmm. versus what people perceive it to be? Well, um, I think they're the perception from people who don't know much about it is that it's just a, uh, a tough guy contest, you know, that it's kind of like a week of hazing where you just get your butt handed to you. Um, but, uh, I can say that in the initial days, uh, you know, more of that went on like in 78, even when I went through in, in 86, there was, some of that, and it wasn't all. It wasn't all that. Um, even even when I went through, there was a lot of things. You know, I learned a ton. But uh, the program shut down in in 1995 in Georgia, and and we brought it back in 2005, and we brought it back with a whole new uh, mission, and that was that we were we were going to stay true to the drills and the concepts that went on. But we were going to add a new element um, that was a leadership element, and we were going to really focus on your personal journey of of overcoming adversity. And uh, I think we've accomplished that. Uh, we've grown grown the program now to uh, include Indiana and and Oklahoma, and um, we're working on a couple of more. Right on. Um, but it takes. Uh, it's a commitment. I mean, it's like making wine uh, from the time somebody says they want to start a program that is affiliated with us. Um, you, you're looking at five to seven years before you get your first program off the ground because you have to send send your instruct, instructors through our program. And then they have to intern for years in order to be able to understand exactly what it is we're right. doing and how we can pull it off safely. Um, um so, so the biggest thing is that, yes, it is very difficult. There is only, uh, we, we average between 45 and 55% completion rate. Um, the majority of those drop out on their own, but we do dismiss uh, people for failure to meet standards. Um, but I can honestly say, you know, we do exit interviews on every single person that leaves. And, uh, you know, a guy, a guy will come for a day, day and a half and, and their exit interview, tell us it was the best training that they've ever had and they'll be back. Um, and, and, you know, we've had people come four or five times before they actually complete it. And it just goes to show, um, you know, there's so much that you can learn from not being successful at something when you try it the first time and, you know, maybe, maybe you've been very fortunate and, 
you know, you've had all the right breaks and you've, uh, you've been successful by default, maybe, uh, in your own organization. Uh, maybe you were related to somebody and that gave you the perception of success because you were promoted or you were, you know, in somebody's club or whatever, right, but right. at smoke divers, it doesn't matter. Nice. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a chief, if you're a captain, if you're black, white, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters except for what you can do in your performance. And, uh, um, we're very proud of that fact. Uh, we just had, we had our 10th uh, female firefighter come through this last class and only the second one. And, you know, since, since we've been back in, in, uh, in 2005 and, uh, you know, there was no changing of standards. There was no, you know, I mean, she had to do every single thing that uh, everybody else did. And, and I might say she did them better than about 80 to 90% of the, uh, people. of the people in the class. So, uh, um, you know, we just, we don't compromise, uh, on things. We're constantly improving the program and we're trying to get out more information. So people are, are successful, but, uh, there's a lot of unknowns and that's on purpose because that adds to the, to the stress and, uh, and, and it actually helps you in your experience there to gain uh, to gain the things that we're wanting you to get, which is uh, critical decision-making. We want to put you in situations where we don't give you a canned answer. you got to figure things, things out uh, while there's live fire, uh, while there's stress, uh, while there's a chance that you may not make it. So all those things add up. And, and we do that, you know, we have a tremendous safety record and uh, – um, but that type of training in the wrong hands can be very dangerous. Um, there has been some incidents with other programs that, uh, that have taught us some things and, and we're constantly watching and changing that, but we don't have a, we don't have a coin on the word smoke diver. So anybody in the world can start a smoke diver program and call it smoke divers. Um, but we do have control on Georgia smoke divers Indiana smoke divers and Oklahoma smoke yeah. divers. And just while we're on the subject, uh, just a shout out. Uh, That's a good looking state right there. Oklahoma. Good looking state. Oklahoma for uh, class two. And uh, thank you, uh, uh, Muskogee, for stepping up. We call them the Smokies from Muskogee now. Nice. Um, they had to change location. Another whole story in adversity. And, uh, of course, uh, back to uh, class one in Indiana. All right. The old, cam- the old camo Indiana hat there. So just a shout out to all those folks, Matt and Brian, tremendous dedication. And one thing that people don't understand is we're not in smoke divers for the, for the, uh, it's not like a conference where you're, where you're getting money or, right. or whatever. Um, all three programs are 501c3 nonprofits and not one person in any organization takes a dime. Even though uh, they're giving a minimum of 80, um, 80 hours that week of class, and there's two classes in Georgia, uh, one in Oklahoma and one in, uh, in Indiana, but nobody gets a dime from any of it. All the money goes back in. It actually costs the instructors money to come and teach the Absolutely. class. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. You know, and, and, and the uh, dedication is unreal. Yeah, but that's why it is what it is, is because, you know, there's no ulterior motives. Um, it is truly about giving back what the program gave to you. And we're trying to make, you know, we're trying to make good firefighters better. Uh, 
just because you can't do the training or because you uh, don't make it, we, you know, there's no making fun of people. Uh, when I exit interview everybody, I tell them, hey, it's going to be tough when you get back to the station because you're going to have those people that are like, oh, you didn't even make it through the first day. And I say, well, you look them right in the eye and say, well, you didn't even make the drive over. Right on. Um, so uh, just get back at it and charge ahead. But uh, uh, definitely love the programs. That's kind of my focus right now, that FDIC and in the UL research, I don't have to swap to uh, do those things anymore or, or use all my vacation and get use in trouble with uh, my wife. Right? <laughs> yeah. So. That's beautiful, man. No, I love it, man. Uh, I've got we uh, uh, one of the first, uh, one of my guys here at Moore Fire Department made it through the Georgia Smoker Diver Program. Now he's teaching at the Oklahoma Smoke Diver Program. So I vicariously, um, I, I don't want to claim anything other than just seeing what he's done gives me a mad respect for it. Does yeah. that make sense? So um, I got some good questions coming at you. One is from one of my favorite people on the whole planet, Todd Edwards. He asks, how does David Rhodes always stay calm as an incident commander? By far one of the best I ever worked with. Uh, I guess just, uh, you know, repetition. Um, I tried to always to uh, not get excited and and just be that voice of calm no matter what was going on and todd and i ran ran tons of fires together and and probably one of the 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 scariest incidents of both of our careers was uh when uh, clark clark glass was trapped in in a fire that we were in charge of and uh but yeah it just you know i uh i tried to keep keep the voice the same uh the whole time I had confidence in the crews because we trained all the time mm. and, uh, you know, um, just, they say, if you're the incident commander, you're hurting cats and, uh, you know, you just got to have trust in your guys and, and, uh, you know, let them do what they're trained to do and then keep an eye, you know, you got to keep an eye out cause they can't see the outside where well, you can't see the inside. And so you got to have good information, uh, you got to know your people, number one, and know who you can who you can trust and and who you may need to need to trust but verify from. <laughs> there's always <laughs> there's always a few, uh, but uh, um, you know I I was very fortunate in 2004 when I got promoted to chief, and it's you know pretty much residential, a little bit of commercial, and. Uh, I was, you know, I was going to track my fires, keep a log and all that for the rest of my career. But I had about 70, had about 70 fires that first year. And, uh, it was a great, you know, intro in, it was just a lot of one, two story house fires and, uh, definitely built confidence. I had, uh, um, you know, just good luck with, with being in that assignment. And right. that, that got me, that got me, you know repetition uh my buddy scott Millsap, mentor always said repetition is the mother of skill and mm. so uh you know i got to face a lot of different different situations and uh uh of course todd edwards and i uh, todd was in command and i was uh one of the i was in in the back of the structure as the uh charlie side sector there and uh when when we had a collapse and and Clark glass got trapped and we had to go into managing the mayday mode. And, um, so yeah, Todd, Todd asked the question, but, uh, Todd was a great incident commander also in his day. I don't know if, uh, he heard me when we went on the first time, but, um, he just had a problem driving 
other than he couldn't drive very well. Other than that, he was, he was a great incident commander. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> anybody that knows Todd or uh, worked in Atlanta knows what I'm talking about. Fair enough. Okay, coming from another Atlanta uh, firefighter, uh, Danny Dwyer said, what was your best day and worst day as a fireman? Um, shoot, I don't know. There were so many best days. Uh, I guess right off the top of my head was my very last day as a driver. Um, I was on truck two, and we caught a working fire with entrapment. It was me, Greg Wise, and Captain Farmer on the truck uh wagon two as we called it back then was on a medical call so we were first in um and it was a kitchen fire i mean there was people screaming that the kid was in there and uh so me greg and cap farmer went in there and uh i went to the kitchen to try to see if i could do anything fire was licking up the uh the balcony there to the second floor and they, they took off upstairs cause we, we had report that the kid was upstairs. upstairs. And so, uh, I started ripping the cabinets down, uh, with a, with my hook and dragging what I could out the back door, flowing the, uh, kitchen sprayer. Um, it was, it was sporty. It was pretty sporty in there. Right were, uh, but, uh, um, they got the kid out and, uh, you know, as the engine company was getting the line to the door, uh, we were coming out with the kid and the kid made it. So that was probably memorable. One of my best, best, uh, days from a fire. Um, worst day was obviously the incident we just talked about with Clark glass where uh, we had that collapse, but you know, when it was all over, um, we had a total, total roof collapse on him, pinned him to where he couldn't move. And because we stayed calm, because everybody worked good together and we had the team that was there from, incident command all the way through the cruise uh we were able to get him out in 16 minutes and nice. uh you know he went was seeing him come down that ladder under his own power was uh was tremendous so it was kind of a bad and good at the same no, time uh, yeah. obviously he was hurt was out of work no no and and uh but yeah both the ones you just described are are, are sound like they had good endings at least yeah 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 no um, okay. Going to my, going to my first staff meeting after being re-promoted was kind of nice. Also, this is a little vindication. As a, <laughs> yeah. As a battalion chief. Um, so I can't really talk about fair too enough. much more of That's that, fair. but um, I did let them know that I appreciated the uh, paid vacation. <laughs> uh, let me see where I'm at. Uh, is, Justin C. Ply had a question about the GSD, which is oldest person to complete the program. Is it an actual training class or is everyone expected to know the material already? So uh, it is a training class, but um, it helps if you have experience. Obviously, you'd have you need to have mastered the basics. Um, if you come and your basic just basic skills are, are lacking, you're going to struggle tremendously uh, we used to have a two-year requirement where you had to be on for two years uh, we dropped that we have a qualification process now where you kind of you have to come and compete for a spot in the class so the way it's laid out is you know sunday monday tuesday is all training um, you're getting technique you're getting repetitions um 
Um, it is grueling. We're doing PT every day. So the, the purpose of the class, uh, again, to, to work your critical decision-making is every drill that we do, that we do uh, maybe with the exception of, of just one or, or two, you have probably already done, mm-hmm. but you have not done them in the context of what we put you in. So we do PT every morning, not to get you in shape. Um, we do PT to wear you out. And as your body starts to wear out, um, things start to happen um, very much like CO poisoning. Your your decision-making decreases. Your a level of awareness decreases. And so on the first day, I tell all the students, you know, if you're if you're working out and you want a bigger bicep, then you have to break that bicep down and mm-hmm. let it rebuild and, and you break it down again and it rebuilds. Well, we don't ever really get to that point in fire service training with our mental side. So we break the body down. It gets into the mental side and then we can exercise when we're at that really depleted state and then we can run drills and you perform in those drills and you sort of learn what it feels like when you're in that you know in that environment and and we get i mean we're right on the edge all the time uh you know from from wednesday on and so it's it's very much training uh it's all training, but very much hands-on with the instructors training you uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And then Wednesday, you're kind of starting to be put to the test on some of those skills, and you're having to do some things by yourself. Uh, something, you know, some things you're with a team or, or with a partner, but uh, but you have to do some things by yourself. And uh, and it's a, it's a very, very mental, very much a mental game. Right on, and uh, and that's what it's for. I mean, it's to it's to exercise that mind, uh, as the shirt says, "Elite few, strong in mind and body." And uh, as one of our members so eloquently put it, is we are elite, but we are not elitist. And so, just the word "elite" means that not very many people have have done it. But um, um, we really hammer in that, that, you know, does not make you better than anyone else. It just makes you different. Uh, you've experienced something that, that affects you. Uh, um, and, and one of some of the proudest comments we get is that we we're teaching people how to overcome adversity. Right. And it's not just personal limitations. It's, it's showing you, you know, you can read, you can go to leadership classes and do PowerPoint all day. You can, take situational awareness classes and learn what it is and all that stuff. But we teach all those things through hands-on. Um, we teach leadership out there where you're sweating and tired and hurting and have to make decisions uh, that affect you and your partner. Um, and, and we're giving you that experience so that you can increase your situational awareness. So you know what it feels like to be extremely hot. You know what it feels like to be trapped and can't move. You know what it feels like um, to be searching without a line. You know what, it, you know, you know, you know what to do. And uh, if you're never put in the situation, the worst place to learn is on the fire ground. Uh, you know, you want you want to make training as realistic as possible. Um, while keeping keeping things as safe as possible, right. 
um, but getting the most bang for the buck. And that's, and that's what we do. So it's training and, and part of it is, is testing too. Beautiful, man. Beautiful answer. Okay. Kyle Rama, Smoothboard Cartel, throwing another one at you. He said, unfortunately, and this is kicking back before the uh, smoke diver answer, but unfortunately, he says, reports are not written and massively distributed when there is not a line of duty death, right? They don't dig in deep on it. He said, what are some lessons that you learned from the incident with Clark? Oh, man. Um, The biggest one was our practice of overhaul. Um, So... You know, everybody does it. Uh, unfortunately, they still do it. But uh, we would get to to a point in a fire to where, you know, the structure's heavily damaged. Um, and we put our people in there for, for massive overhaul. Mm-hmm. And instead of calling a, a, a track hoe excavator in there to knock the thing down into a pile and leave one engine sitting there for a while, um, we want to get back in service. You know, we want to get those crews back in service and get things done. So um, it, it had just, just the culture of our organization was we pretty much overhauled everything. And, and in that case, that was one, you know, 95% of the fire was out. There was a couple of stubborn hot spots, um, made the decision to send them in to, uh, to check and see if they could get to this, this one spot. And, you know, while they were in there, uh, the worst thing happened, you know, the freaking roof collapsed. And this was, this was a large house. It was a, a mansion and it had a slate roof that had metal, uh, metal windows. So you couldn't take the, the panes of the windows out, um, without cutting them. And, uh, but you know, the, the roof on this house had just been redone and, and the roof cost 200 grand. Oh, wow. Um, and it was actually pieces of slate. So, uh, you know, you just, you, uh, we, we learned and, and Todd, you know, back to Todd, we, we made the decision, you know, we're not going to put our people in that position again. We will keep control of that building and call public works. Um, we'll use ladders, master streams, whatever. We'll leave an engine on site to watch for flare ups and hot spots, And, uh, you know, I think him, uh, him and I, and, and a couple other chiefs did a pretty good job at, at sticking to that throughout the rest of our career. But as a whole, the organization still does the exact same thing. I mean, they, they put people in there to overhaul and, you know, uh, huh. it's, it's, we, you know, you got on one hand, you got, you got fire chiefs that that won't let you go in a vacant building. And on the other hand, the same fire chiefs are telling you to, to, <laughs> to overhaul, overhaul buildings that are about to collapse. So, um, overhauling is, is super dangerous and, uh, um, don't be afraid to call the, the excavator and knock it all down. Because if it's a burned out shell, you're actually doing the community a favor by knocking it into a pile because that way nobody can get back in it and set it back on fire, you know? No, I like it. Uh, And and you've answered. So we've touched on so many things and it's beautiful. And, uh, and even Kyle said, I've heard the audio. They stayed cool as a cucumber. And that's awesome, man. That's a great, great, uh, uh, compliment. It was at this point when the internet crashed for the final time on the night, and we did not resume until two days later. And so we pick up with a new topic here as uh, Chief David Rhodes continues the interview two days later. 
Um, but we're going to jump right off where we left off, and we're going to start with decision making. That's one of the, the topics we wanted to cover. So I'm going to throw decision making at you as, as our soft toss to start the start the evening tonight, sir. All right. Yeah, and if anybody had questions that they didn't get in on the other topics, feel free to send them in, and we'll get we'll get to those too. So uh, when we we started the Smoke Diver program back in 2005 after a 10 year hiatus, I got really, really intrigued and wanted to research decision-making because we wanted to make sure that our drills uh, were not just teaching a skill, but they were also teaching firefighters how to think about what they were doing. And one of the big parts of smoke divers with every drill is, is knowing what the why is, why are we doing what we're doing? What do we see? How do we interpret it and all that? So back in 2005, uh, reached out to several of the, uh, several of the uh, older smoke diver instructors and stuff and asked them what they thought about it. And Lee Stewart, who was uh, fire chief in Brunswick, Georgia at the time, um, he recommended that I read um, a book about Colonel John Boyd, which most people know by now, because they're teaching it at the National Fire Academy and stuff, is the the father of the OODA loop. Uda. And he was an Air Force colonel. So, yeah, so uh, I read that, and it just totally fascinated me. And inside the book, it talked about several of the guys that were along the journey with him that worked at the Pentagon with him. And one was Chet Richards, and it said Chet Richards now lives in Atlanta. So I looked the guy up, okay. and I find him. I call him. I get his phone number, and I call him. And uh, we just talked like two long lost buddies. And I tell him, you know, of course, I played the fire department card and he had an office in Atlanta. And uh, within a day or two, I had swung by in the battalion car and picked him up and took him for a little ride around the city. And he was very intrigued uh, about teaching me everything that he could about Boyd. So he gave me all the Boyd's papers. Oh, wow. uh, Sent them to me, you know, electronically. And Boyd had tons of, uh, you know, short papers, patterns of destruction, uh, analysis and synthesis, and they just go on and on. They all tie together to decision making. And so uh, I really got deep in there. Now, Chet is a is a uh, he has a Ph.D. in mathematics and him and Boyd worked together designing airplanes at the Pentagon, uh, several of the projects. Uh, obviously, the the, uh, the plane you see in Top Gun is a uh is is uh i can't ever remember f-15 i think and uh one is an air force model one's a navy yes. model yes. so for all you military plane buffs don't kill me it's the one with the two fins on the back and it's real cool looking um so boyd is the one who developed that top gun maneuver i'll slam on the brakes and they'll fly right by he believed in maneuverability and and that translated into war fighting and that if you were nimble, small units, you could move very quickly versus the old war of attrition with big armies and stuff. And so digging into that, um, you know, I discovered the uh, OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. And then the loop starts over every time. And it made perfectly, perfectly good sense versus what you what you would read in the fire service uh, literature back in, in, you know, the 80s, 90s was that you resize up every 15 to 20 minutes. Right. You know, well, well really you resize up 
every second. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you make a decision, somebody takes action and you look for a particular outcome. And if you don't see it, you reset, you know, you're just constantly in this loop. So it made a lot of sense. And so, um, what I learned was that in order to train for decision-making versus just learning a task, you need to do scenario based training and you need to have context to why you're doing what it is you're doing. Um, obviously you got to use the, the, uh, crawl, walk, run type deal. So you do have to learn the skill first, but at some point in learning that skill, you can't just stop. You have to put into a scenario, um, there has to be some unknown conditions and you have to let the firefighters perform in that context. And you don't give them the answer up front. Um, you have to let them find the answer in the scenario. And it may not be what you would have done, but you're looking for outcome. And then you go back and you critique, uh, and you, you know, you have a little, little hot wash and you say, well, you know, I would have probably done this, but I see what you did there and it worked. And now you've got that. Now you've got that in your database there in your slide tray to fall back on and uh, tied that in with uh, the recognition, recognition, prime decision-making uh, stuff that was out there. And they both went hand in hand. Nice. Uh, Boyd stuff was before Gary Klein's stuff but you could tell they were on to the same uh, philosophy. Basically they were just calling it something different. So uh, uh, when you, when you look at the OODA loop, observe, of course, you know, that's what you see, uh, what you hear, what you feel. Uh, it can be the elements, it can be heat. Um, it can be radio traffic, whatever. And then the most important piece is the orientation, which is actually your situational awareness. Um, and like with smoke divers, I mean, there, there are people who teach situational awareness classroom stuff and they have some drills and stuff with smoke divers. We are developing your situational awareness by putting you in a lot of different situations to build your, your database. Um, one mistake is that you can't just read a book and change your situational awareness. It is what it is. It's what you bring to the table right now. All your prior experiences, the way you were, were brought up as a kid, um, the training you've had, the education you've had, it all comes together at that moment. And that is your situational awareness. And there's nothing really you can do about it right then. So in order to improve it, you have to have more experiences. You have to have more experiences, more training, more development, and then you tend to increase your your uh, awareness of what's going on around you. Uh, as as Chief Todd Edwards asked, how do you remain calm or, or whatever on the scene the other night? Well, that's how is it's repetition. Um, it's, it's repetition to get you used to the environment, but not repetition to turning you into a robot necessarily to where you're not thinking. It's just that the, the routine skills like getting dressed, putting on your air pack, uh, doing a size up, advancing a line, you don't think about those. So you're able to focus on the environment and your, and your orientation. So, Beautiful. um, 
then then of course you make a decision you act on it and the loop starts over but what i found is that inside orientation there's and i got some notes here because i can't ever remember all this stuff is your cultural your culture of your organization your cultural traditions your ability to analyze and synthesize information so how do you see something and understand what it means right Uh, uh, and to put that in perspective, you know, you say you got to do a 360 as the first new officer. You need to do that 360. And some people have coined the term. It's not just a walk around the building. So you're not just walking around the building to check the box to say you did a 360. Did what it. if you see like some, yeah, you see some heavy black smoke. You see a basement door. I mean, uh, you see a propane tank. Uh, you see a hole in the back, you know, an, an open well, whatever it is. You're supposed to be gathering that in, and then you got to pass it along with the radio traffic. Um, your previous experiences are huge on your uh, orientation. And so um, there's only two places that we can actually influence orientation, and that's previous, previous experiences. We can create a lot of experiences by going to incidents, by doing lessons learned, by training. Um, but not just any training. Um, take, for instance, uh, fire simulation okay. uh, software, and you do command to develop your decision making. Well, I've seen it done to where there's static slides. Everybody sees the same three or four slides, no matter what you do. All right, especially on promotional exams. Right. So you see these three, four slides. You may do some tactic that is going to totally change the fire behavior. Let's take, for instance, you set up a fan at the front door. Sure. You, haven't, you haven't taken a line in. The fire is going to grow exponentially and get bigger because you're blowing air. You are creating a wind-driven fire. All right. But unless you can change that slide to show that and you just go to the next slide and it doesn't show that, you're actually screwing your brain up because there was no consequences to your action. So if you want to truly train for good decision-making and good orientation, you have to create realistic prior experiences, whether it's simulated or whether it's actually, you know, out on the, on the drill yard. Um, obviously you can do, uh, um, self-study. I want to dig dig and say like for for the simulation, is it, is it strictly, because I I get exactly what you're saying. When you have static slides and no matter what decision you make, you're going to get the next slide. Uh, you're actually reinforcing, you could be reinforcing bad habits or, uh, absolutely. But is it just strictly the, I'm trying to put this word, the question the right way. Is it the, the work on the front end to make enough slides to make it to where the decisions matter so that they're represented with consequences? Uh, is that the best we can do with simulation? I'm guess is what I'm trying to ask. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's something of course that I do and, and, couple of my training partners and yes our our person who runs the computer and runs the simulation has to know building construction they have to know fire behavior and they have to understand tactics so that if a firefighter takes a certain tactic they know what that's going to do to the building and they can change the slide and the slide chart from behind the scenes looks like a like a uh, MS property calls that sheet. Is he breathing? Branching. Yes. Go this way. You know, it's just a a total loop. Yeah. And so um, it doesn't take as many as you would 
you know, thing. It doesn't take 400 slides, but if you're going to have a, a simulated house fire, you're going to need, you know, 20, 25 slides to be able to show the, the different tactics and different things that can happen. You know, what happens when you vent the roof versus take a window, right? You know, you got to have a slide for both and they both may work. And so again, you're looking for the outcome, but if you don't change the picture to match the tactics, then the person's not losing, not learning anything. And they are, they have a very good chance of reinforcing bad habits because they don't see consequences. Absolutely. Even if you tell them at the end, Hey, you shouldn't have done this because this would have happened. Well, it didn't happen in your visual cues. So it, it, it's, you just kind of wash that off and just you're going to go back to doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Sorry. So the, those are, those are good areas. And remember, if you have the only other place, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. The, the only other place that we can affect is, is in new information. And obviously that's information that comes from the company officers inside or around back. Um, it's what we hear on the radio traffic. It's so important to listen to the radio traffic. You can learn so much just by voice inflection. And you want to train enough with your guys so that there's that implicit communication that, that occurs just because you can tell tone of voice. Mm. You know, um, you know, are they exhausted? Are they, are they, you know, in good place? Are they hot? You can tell a lot just by, just by really paying attention to the details. No, that is beautiful. And, uh, how important on that, uh, the communication, sorry, I'm making sure that goes away. I want to tell this before I go to my questions, everybody out there, remember if you have questions from the other night or any clarification you wanted from the, the chopped up, make sure you get your questions in. Get him into Chief Road so he can answer them. Uh, going back to the notes. Coming at you, Chief. Here it is. Uh, experiential training. I had to say it correctly. Experiential training. I wanted to move on to that discussion. And so that ties right in. Yeah. Is what that means is that you are, you are creating an experience through a scenario. Um, you can... Uh, some of the acronyms, they call it uh, tactical decision games is one that's used even in the military and um, in the fire service. And sometimes those are very simple. It may be uh, you draw, you have a picture of a house and you hold it up in front of somebody for five seconds and then you ask them a question, you know, okay, what would you do if there was fire showing from the garage? And, and it's all time. So like, you got to have an answer right now. You can't, it's not a discussion, right? It's like teaching you to make quick, quick decisions. Um, and then in the field, it's a scenario that enables adaptability. And the whole key here, what is really missing is, I think you may have, have asked something about it uh, on the last one is I get so many young guys that you're training and they say, well, what's the best way to put the fire out? Right. And you're like, I can't answer that because you got to, you got to show me the fire first and the building construction and all the other variables that go in. So you have, you have to be able to teach them to think and to have enough tools in the toolbox to be able to pull out options and get them started. Uh, but you don't want them to, uh, 
you don't want them to go into the analysis paralysis. Uh, yeah, I always say absolutely. A, a, a person who's inexperienced will size up. They won't make a decision. They'll size up again. They still won't make a decision. And by the time they do decide to make a decision, they turn around and look and it's different again. So sometimes you just need to grab the line and go. No. And, you know, uh, there's an old saying that, a that, a a pretty good plan implemented right now yes. with with strength, vigor, and heart is a hundred times better than a perfect plan three days from now. Right on. You right know, on. and you're gonna always Monday morning quarterback and you're gonna find out, you know, well, we should have gone in this door, we should have done this. Well, you don't freaking know that at the time. So you gotta build momentum. You gotta get the ball rolling and build momentum. And, you know, as that first line goes. The whole incident rides on that first line so many times Absolutely. because if that doesn't work and you go, you go wrong or you lose your water or whatever, then, you know, you're playing catch up for the next 20, 30 minutes, maybe, maybe hours even. Yeah. Into the, uh, the so that's, that's the- it. It's, it's basically creating. Yeah. It's basically creating experience. Experiential training is creating a scenario that allows the student to operate in realistic as possible conditions with unknown factors and unknown outcomes so that they have to make the decisions. They have to decide where to search. You don't tell them you're going to start your search here or you're going to do this. You you give them the scenario and you create the environment and you tell them to go. Let them go. And obviously they have to have mastered the basics before that. Um, so that's not something you start off day one in rookie school with, but by the, by the end of each lesson in rookie school, you should be putting your firefighters in scenarios that make them perform, not just the old one, two, three squirt. Don't put my fire out, but create things, create issues and don't overcreate them so they can't win right. <laughs> and bombard them. But, you know, uh, uh, some of these guys, we were FDIC instructors, you know, that do cool stuff like, uh, you know, you, you're so used to stretching a pre-connect or stretching that skid load and stuff. Put a car in front of the door, you know, park a car right in front of the door where you got to get it, put a fence up, do something that's out of the ordinary that makes you adapt. And in order to create that adaptability, you have to have instructors that understand adapt ability not just not just people who've read the book and regurgitated the information whatever and i truly don't think that you get the experience to build your situational awareness to have the experiential training uh in a classroom and i'm not knocking the the folks that teach the stuff it's just it's like i almost look at it like it's an awareness level you're you're teaching people what situational awareness is you're teaching them what decision-making is, but until you get out in the field and actually make decisions, you're not going to get any better at it. Right on. No, I understand that completely. Uh, Ryan King said, the newer people always try to find the black and white answers. It's hard to get them to think on their own and realize that there is no one simple answer. Right. And they're just so, you know, they're so used to instant, instant knowledge. You know, uh, if, if, if I wanted to learn, something you know i had to go to the encyclopedia when i was a kid and i had to do search now we can just google it in its instant so they want to know what the answer is and it's never that simple and that's where we sell our recruits short is by we're still trying to train them in the in the military boot camp 
you know, we didn't hire you for your mind. We hired you for your body and do as I say. And, yes. and, and, you know, really we got to, you can still have the discipline and the esprit de corps and, and all that stuff, but you really need to say, you know, from day one, Hey, I want you to think about everything that, that we're saying here and everything that you're doing, because, you know, so many people tell them not to think, right. And that's the old world war two basic training thing is they didn't want you to think they just wanted you to do whatever the officer said. Well, we got to go beyond that. And, and the guys today are much smarter, uh, for the most part, they're just different. So we got to tra- change the training, uh, model. Uh, a prime example of that is, uh, uh, chainsaws. Yes. Okay. So when I went to, to recruit school, it was like, okay, here's the chainsaw fired up and we'll show you how to cut a roof. All right. So you fired the chainsaw up and they, and you cut a roof today. It's, this is a chainsaw. You know, there are many like it. Um, this one, is this one happens to be a steel 52 or whatever, you know, and it's like, it takes a mixture of oil and gas. And here's how you mix the oil and gas. You have to go all the way. Cause they've never seen, they've never held a chainsaw or whatever. So what was a three or four hour class to me on how to cut a roof may be a two or three day class because you got to start with how to take the chain off and put it on correctly. Uh, how to add oil. You, you got to start at the very beginning stuff that your dad or your granddad, or if you worked on a farm, you got everybody came with those skills for the most part in the fifties through the, through the eighties. Mm-hmm. And then around the nineties, it started dwindling down and you didn't have those skills uh, anymore. And it's not, it's not a bad, it doesn't mean they're dumb. That's, that's a big mistake. Um, they're, they're actually way more smarter than we were, but they don't have those practical farm skill type things or trades. If they haven't worked in the trades, everybody in in 1985, when I started at the little Conyers fire department, every single person was in the trades. One was an HVAC guy. One was an electrician. And that's, and you learn adaptability because nothing ever fits the fits the blueprint or the plan. You have to figure it out on the scene. Right. So you're, you're in a job that makes you adapt. Um, but if all you do is go to school, uh, play some video games and all that, you don't get those skills. No, and it's not bad. I'm not knocking it. It's just different. So you have to train differently. Absolutely, man. Uh, so people said it's Don Sapp said it's the culture. Sarah Furman said there's no Googling on the fire ground. Attention to detail. Michael Sandala said, we are a hands-on craft, not a book-only craft. Everybody's chiming in. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Richard Bue said, we don't pay you to think is always the return comment. And then Justin C. Ply said, let me get down there to it. Uh, we had one put water in a saw because he thought the drop on the cap meant water. So, no, and it's it's, it's ah. true. If you, weren't, if you didn't grow up with that, uh, it's true. It's absolutely true. True. So we had a recruit class. This is probably getting close to 10 years now, seven to 10 years. And it was a, it was a double class. It's like uh, 60 people, 30 in one side, 30 in the other, but we combined them all for, for an SCBA lecture before we started doing our hands-on training. So everybody has a pack. We're sitting around, you know, big, big room with everybody's at a table. I'm standing up in the middle and we're going over the parts and pieces and all this stuff. And, uh, 
And I'm like, all right, so we're going to disconnect the main line. And I showed everybody where it was. And I'm like, so take that off. I said, it, it unscrews. So unscrew it. Uh, a few people are struggling a little bit with, you know, the old righty tighty lefty loosey thing and stuff. Um, and I would say probably 20, 25% of them were struggling. Then we go to, to something else. And I just, I'm noticing that like just basic things like quarter turn on the Scott face piece. Um, all these things are not natural to these folks. And so I just called a timeout and I said, let me ask the question. Nobody's in trouble. How many of you in here have started a lawnmower and cut your own grass out of 60 people? Oh, two. wow. No, yeah. Two. And so I said, so when I said righty tidy, lefty loosey, who knew what I was talking about? About half of them raised their hand. So I grabbed a water bottle and I said, is everybody open to water bottle or a Gatorade bottle? They're like, yeah. And I said, okay, same concept here. Think about how you take the water bottle cap on and off. And I said, look at the water bottle. You see those, see that spiral? Those are threads. Now look at your air pack. You know, you're looking at some, it's, I said, it's very easy to thread that water bottle because it's so, it's so thick. It's a thick thread and it's, and it's gapped. And I said, but when you get the machine threads, they're real tight and intricate. So you got to be perfect. And so you have to go to that. You don't call them, you know, you don't call them. Y'all don't know shit. Y'all are stupid. Blah, right. blah, blah. You, you got to go to their something that they know and relate it to. So we started doing repetition. So it was like, you know, it's kind of it sounded corny and it sounded like it was definitely unnecessary when I went to recruit school, but it was like, okay, we're going to do everything 10 times. Take the main line off. Everybody got it off. Hold it up. All right. Now let's put it back on. Okay. Take it off. Put it back on. We did 10 reps on everything by the end. They had it. Right. And guess what? Uh, you know, I got a call from a lieutenant uh, about two years later, and he had this uh, guy at a station that was a recruit who was in that class. And, and the guy wasn't very bright. Um, he couldn't remember a whole lot of anything. He uh, he couldn't remember his hose lays or how to put the hose on the truck or whatever. He goes, man, I just want to tell you, though. He goes, that joker knows everything <laughs> there is to know about a breathing apparatus. Nice. He said, we go – he says, we test him out on 10 things and he fails 10. And we go, all right, go get your air pack. And he's like, well, this is a quarter turn here. And this is a so-and-so, this is a low pressure and the air comes. And it was because we took that time and did those repetitions. Then we put him in scenarios where he had to use it. So. No, that's that. And uh, we got a lot of comments coming at you. Um, here we go. I'll try to read them. I'll try to catch you up. Amanda Miller said, hammer the principles in. The methods will arise from a thorough knowledge of basics and an ingrained understanding of principles. The man who grasps principles can successfully select his own methods. The man who tries methods ignoring principles is sure to have trouble. And she's quoting Emerson. So beautiful quote. It's our job to develop the yep. trade, the trade of firefighting in them. That comes from Michael Allen quoting Ray McCormick. Um, uh, <clears throat> Smoothbore Cartel chimes in and said, the man who hates the question of why is the man who doesn't have the answer. Beautiful, man. So good stuff coming in on all of this. All right. No questions. Why? Yet. Because I said so. Because that's the way I said so. Yeah, absolutely. Which shuts down Another questions. one of my favorite drills. Yes. Another one of my favorite drills is, uh, uh, and we did, we did this in recruit schools and we do it at smoke divers. We do it every chance we get, is you take the air pack. Now, once 
obviously this is not a first day deal. This is once the, the candidate is comfortable with the air pack. So we'll take like groups of four or five and uh, we take their air packs from them. We turn them around, have them face the other way. And then we do something to each air pack, something different. We may disconnect the main line. We may uh, turn the bypass on, uh, you know, and trip the diaphragm so that it's free flowing. Um, we might tighten one strap all the way down. We do something that is like going to screw you up. Then we tell them it's a race. All right. You, whoever gets their air pack off first, you know, is going to win. Everybody else owes us 50 push ups or whatever. So immediately you take out of their mind checking the equipment right. out. They're going for speed. Okay. And it, right. And I don't, I don't like setting people up to fail, but there, there's a purpose and method to this mad, madness. They're going to win eventually, but they got to learn the hard, you know, the hard way to get there. So then you go, go, and they turn around. Well, their air pack is not in front of them. It's been switched and moved and, you know, we got their helmets mixed up and all that. So they got to put the air pack on. Well, they immediately go throw it on straps down and they have to solve the problem. Right. And so my, my whole deal, and I tell them by the end of doing that for an hour, and I don't know how many reps we get in in an hour, with each group of five, but you have solved almost every problem you're ever going to encounter. And I want you to know what, I want you to, to hear the sound and know what the problem is. Right on. So you, your hand goes directly to the problem and fixes it. You need to know what you got to take your pack off to fix, what you can leave it, leave it on to fix. And at the same time, you are stressing the importance of checking your equipment out in the morning because you say, Hey, how many times have you gotten to work? checked your air pack out and they had a fire and the main lines disconnected to the bottle. You know, it's three o'clock in the morning. Right. They've been up all night and they popped the bottle on and threw it on the truck. So, so those kind of drills are back to that scenario enable, enabling adaptability that creates good decision-making. It creates good habits. Beautiful. So. I love it, man. All right. Uh, I love the, and, and I love the drills. Uh, Search, search size up, man. One of my favorite topics, search and search size up. So I'm just, I'm just throwing you soft tosses right now and letting you crush them. Yeah. So, yeah, I wrote that article. Uh, I don't know. It's been years, years ago for fire engineering, and it was size up for search. And uh, a lot of people had written about search and how to search and techniques. And so, again, this goes back to decision-making is we teach at the basic firefighter level. Uh, and I, I see it all around the country. You teach the recruits for the most part, the safest, uh, most ineffective search that there is, which is a right hand. Sign. Are you back? I'm back. Zoom just crashed unexpectedly and then okay. came right back. So, Hopefully there's no okay. issue. Woo. I don't want to, I have PTSD flashbacks from the other night. Uh, <laughs> I know. As soon as I saw you freeze, I'm like, oh no. So okay, uh, back to we teach the, the most recruits. ineffective. Yeah. Most ineffective. I think. Go ahead. Yes. So we teach them to go to the front door, do a right hand or left hand search, crawl around, you know, on the outside wall and all. And that's, you know, that keeps you oriented very well, but it is so ineffective. Now, 
starting out as a basic academy and just getting people used to being in the dark and all that is fine. But if you want to find somebody, you got to size that structure up. You got to know what's the time of day, what you got to play the probabilities because if it's just you and, and one other guy searching and you got a 2,500, 3,000, 4,000 square foot house to search, Time is of the essence. That's that's an old essentials quote, you know, in rescue. Time is against the victim. So you need to look at that house, take into consideration all these old lessons that were in the book, time of day. What are the visual signs that you see outside or their cars home? You know, is it two? If it's two o'clock in the morning, why in the world would I start a search at the front door on a right hand wall and go into the living room? Right. Okay. Now, could there be somebody there? Absolutely. But more than likely, they are in a bedroom or between their main egress, which may not be the front door, depending on the neighborhood. It may be the garage door. They're going to be between there and the bedroom, or they're going to be in the bedroom. So why don't we go straight to the bedroom? Love it. Um, That's why that's why vent inner search is so critical. You know, more rescues are made with vent inner search than any other type of tactic. You know, you go straight to the most probable location of the victim and then search back to the exit. Uh, Yeah, some people give you technical, like go to the closest to the fire and all that. Well, it depends on the time of day. If it's a two story house and you got to know your building construction. And you learn that on those pesky EMS calls. Yes, sir. So if it's a nineteen, if it's a nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies two story, all the bedrooms are upstairs. Um, if it's eighties, you're gonna start seeing masters on the main. You're gonna see masters on one side of the house on the ranch and 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 kids' rooms on the other side. So you need to know these things so that you can plan plan your search accordingly. And if you do that, you couple that with your with your building construction knowledge, you couple that with your fire behavior knowledge, man, I can get in there and I can close doors. I can cut off areas and I can create the safest environment there is while being the most aggressive firefighter out there. Nice. Okay. I don't have to have all these policies and all this stuff to follow, to be safe. If I know the building construction and I know fire behavior, I can make it safe. By using those tactics, just closing a door might buy me 20 minutes. Nice, man. Uh, different questions coming at you. And Walter Lewis said, V E S all caps. Absolutely. The seconds are theirs a hundred percent. And what I like, man, is just using the noggin. I mean, the search size up using your noggin, being the detective and saying, where absolutely, man, a hundred percent. What if you see a soccer ball in the front yard? What if you see a tricycle in the front yard? Yes. Don't just ignore it. If you see a tricycle in the yard, you know there's a toddler. If you see a, a soccer ball, you know you can you can take that age up just a little bit. You know, um, uh, there's all kinds of things that you can you you can see from the outside of the house that gives you clues of uh, you know who may be there. Um, a finished basement, you know, you got a, a, a basketball goal and a. a you know, a soccer net, whatever. Uh, you see some high school stickers on the car. Well, there's probably a teenager living in the basement. Right. On. You know, everybody wants to get away from mom and dad, go down to the basement so they can get on the internet and do things they're not supposed to do. Right. Okay. So, so you gotta, you gotta just, just 
just think about those things. And I'm not talking about a freaking checklist. It's not like, okay, you know, road said, if there's a high school sticker, no, just, just ride around, go on your EMS calls when you're, uh, wiping folks noses and stuff, obviously the trauma and the cardiac arrest, you got to get to it. But when you're on those wipe your nose calls or, or wipe, what are the parts you're wiping on those EMS calls? Hopefully the nose, but go ahead and look around. Look around and and look at those visual cues, and then after you get the refusal paperwork signed, or the ambulance comes and does the same thing, sit there and talk about what you. What do you see, oh, dude? Absolutely. What are some things here? How many people do you think live in this house? And you got to be. You should be doing that every day as a company officer, every single day. Take every opportunity that you're out there instead of getting pissed off about the call. Use it. Use it as training. Use it as a training experience. Beautiful, man. I love I love the EMS call, getting to know your district. You know, knowing your district so much more than map pages, man. Knowing those names. And and the best part about it is, and I think Steve Robertson pushes this quite a bit, but when you go inside one of them in a neighborhood, you know, how many times is that floor plan repeated in a neighborhood? You know? Absolutely. It's so it's so strong. Um always be aware. Yep, and the old you know, the old houses the, the old houses are very compartmentalized. And so there's a a good chance that fire spreads a little different. Um, and, and there's a great chance that, uh, you know, you're going to have that wizard of Oz moment where you've got a burned out house and you open that door up because every room is compartmentalized. Nowadays, only the bedrooms are right. compartmentalized. Everything else is wide open. Wide so, open. uh, you need to know that, you, you know, it's, you, you can't just, you can't just VES on any window. Like, you know, if, you, if you're popping into the living room, you're not, you're not you don't have anything to close right. to cut off the, the fire. So you need to know that you're going in a bedroom or uh, something. Now, you can gain access that way. And if conditions aren't bad, you just extend your your search on. But uh, um, definitely sizing up, looking for all the visual cues. Uh, we talked about earlier the abandoned uh, uh, building stuff. Um and when you're doing when you're doing your walk around as an initial officer, you're looking for victims too. Right. Um, it, you you look up and you know it's wintertime. You look up and see an open window and smoke's chugging out of it. Look in the bushes, you know. Uh, and I think I put this in the article. Wouldn't you hate to know? Oh yeah. That you did a three sixty, spent ten twenty minutes searching that structure and all, and some cop comes up and says. Hey man, I found this lady in, in the, the bushes, bushes out back. Yeah. She's barely breathing, you know? So you gotta, you just gotta kind of be aware and it's, you know, you're not searching the freaking, you know, with a fine tooth comb, but you're looking, you're looking, you know, situational awareness destroyed. again, it goes behind it. Right. Full right. Circle, right and, back it, and it's, and it happens fast. It happens fast. You just gotta be absorbing these things as you walk. So it's beautiful. Now, this is the question we, 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 Ultimately, we're going to try and push push this question and see if we can get past it. Because last time, this is the one that brought it to a screeching halt. Ultimately, but it is, and I'm yeah. super excited about this question because, but it's post traumatic boss syndrome versus PTSD. So, run right. So i'll I'll preface this by saying that I don't mean to take anything away from PTSD. Um, it's it's definitely real. Uh, a lot of people have issues after calls and uh, after things that have happened, it's legit. And, you know, you need to talk about it. You need to use the peer support groups and all that stuff. 
Um, and there's a big acceptance of that in the, in the fire chief's culture. Um, they're big on those peer support groups and they're big on, uh, you know, those resources. I think the IFF has a great program and all, and that is super, super great stuff. Uh, it needs to stay, it needs to be enhanced and all, but my personal philosophy on a lot of the mental health issues in the fire service is they are not caused by a call. Okay. The majority of problems that people have are caused by the organization itself by having a bad boss. All right. Now that bad boss could be at any level. It may be the chief. It may be a deputy chief. It may be your, your officer. But if you think about it, there's a lot more time spent just in the station life every day working with people than there is on calls. All right. So the odds are that more people are affected by bad bosses mentally than they are by bad calls. Now it's a different, different type of, uh, of of stress, but it is a slow bleed to death stress. Oh yeah. Okay. Cause it's reoccurring every day. It's not a traumatic incident. It's not that you got cussed out one time, you know, by your boss and it hurt your feelings. It's not that it is a culture of bad toxic decisions. It's bad promotional processes. It's lack of training, lack of being involved, lack of ha- being allowed to have morale. Mm. You know, we talked about the t- T-shirts, Yes. you know, uh, and, and no one thing fixes it. Uh, when I do my leadership stuff, the trust, love and thermodynamics class, we talk about the picnic. Okay. It's like, okay, everybody knows morale's horrible. So we put a committee together of headquarters folks to decide what we're going to do about morale. And they decide we're going to have a picnic. Okay. We're going to have a picnic. So they order the food, they reserve the park, they do all that stuff. And who shows up? The (laughs) headquarters staff. The headquarters people. Right. Yeah. And on the day of the picnic, you know, you hear beep, beep, engine 20, uh, respond to the picnic. You know, they start dispatching companies to go to the picnic because they want people there to take the food that they've bought. But nobody is having fun. Picnics come out of high morale and they're designed at the bottom of the organization, not at the top. You know, it's good to have an employee appreciation day and awards banquet. All that stuff is great. But you can't just have horrible morale and throw a picnic and think that it's going to solve everything because it's your culture. It's your culture that created the bad morale. Um, Bad, bad assignment policies. You know, uh, one of the things I fought for as a union president was a bid system, you know, and it's been like on and off. But when people feel that they're getting a fair shake um, and in these big organizations, there's no way the fire chief and decision makers know everybody and know who's best for what. So you have to put things in place and you have to push that authority down to the lowest level of decision making so people can can make it. At one time in our organization, it took six signatures to get a pair of gloves 
wow. if your firefighting gloves were worn out and you had a hole in it, it had to be approved by the deputy chief of operations. So if you were a firefighter, it had to go all the way up and stuff. And it's like, you know, Brunacini always said it, you know, we trust these folks with a $2 million ladder truck, but we can't trust them with a $40 pair of gloves. Right. You know, so if the, if the captain or the lieutenant at the station says you need a new pair of gloves, that should be it. That should be it. You just get you some new gloves. You know? I love it. I and love so it. Preach it. The point of that bad boss behavior is it is it is truly a a subculture of bad leadership. And there's just so much there's so much bad leadership that infects and gets gets and creates toxic environments to where it becomes a power struggle. You know, do what I say, look at here, look at my collar and people aren't, aren't in it for the right reason, you know, and you're always going to have that because you're going to have different personalities and all that. But, but again, the reason I bring that up is I'm here to say more people are suffering mentally from bad bosses, bad policies, bad organizational culture, then we'll ever suffer from a bad call. That's the dude. And that's so strong. you got to fix that. That is got to fix that. And, and there's more to, I mean, the mental health issue goes, you know, some people are miserable, whether they're in the fire service or whether they're selling cars or building houses and they bring that to the job. Yes. And they have, they don't have a support. They have a bad home life. They have bad relationships and it's their personality or it's their experiences that create it. And they can't, those people are the dangerous folks that if you get them in a toxic work environment and don't give them brotherhood, sisterhood, a sense of feeling some people, the fire, the fire departments is their support network. That's that's what they have. If you take that away and you create a toxic environment of of unfair punishment, bad promotional processes, it drives those folks over the edge. Oh, yeah. It drives them over the edge. And I'm telling you, uh, the fire chiefs don't want to study that because guess what? It's like me looking in the mirror and saying, hey, I didn't do my push-ups today. Okay. They don't want to study that. They can. Bl- it's easy. It's easy to blame it on a call. Right. It's easy to blame it on a call, and then we can treat those. It's, we can treat those the same as we can say you're in the wrong t-shirt. Nice. You're in the wrong t-shirt. You need to put that right t-shirt on. Oh well, he must. He must. He must be dealing with a lot of stress because he runs a lot of calls. He's probably seen some bad stuff. No, he's tired of you jacking with him. Yeah, he is chronic, tired of you, Jack. And chronic exposure to the toxicity uh, of a bad leadership. Yep. Dude, I love it. Man. And the more we, we said it the other night, uh, I think Shane uh, brought it up. And I know he's I, I know his whole story and he knows mine. But it seems that the go getters, the ones that don't sit on the sofa and watch TV all day, as this always just chapped my butt, man. So you take a guy, his whole career, he does nothing but show up for work. Okay. He shows up for work. He watches TV. He goes on the calls when the bell rings, does the absolute minimum, doesn't make any waves. And man, he sells through his career. Nothing, no issues and all. 
you got a guy that's volunteering to teach at the academy for recruits. He's serving on uh, the apparatus committee to spec out trucks, um, going on trips, paying for his own training elsewhere, coming back and volunteering to train the battalion and all that stuff. That dude slips one time Mm -hmm. and something minor. And it's a huge incident in the organization. You know, this guy gets the book thrown at him or they get moved to a crappy assignment because they're, they're just too motivated. They're too motivated. And, uh, you, you have to realize that if you're that guy and not, not everybody who's highly motivated is doing the right thing. So I'm not saying that there are, there are some highly motivated jerks out there. <laughs> um, but if you're in it for the right reason and you're trying to make folks better, and, and you're doing those things, you shouldn't be attacked. You, know, you should be, you should be like, Hey man, we need to really, we need to fan the flames on this guy. We 100%. need, we need to crank that fan up and blow that oxygen in there. You know, let's give that guy a day off to go to this class instead of taking vacation, you know, heck let's pay for his training class. Let's, let's give him a little incentive to, cause he's making our organization better. And, uh, unfortunately, and I'm telling you, I got a big network. There are a lot of people out there that are just like, man, I don't even want to get promoted. I just want to, I just want to retire. You know, I just want to finish my time out and retire and they'll transfer to some, you know, slip station and just kind of chill for their last five years when they could really be doing some good, good stuff. And it's because of bad culture, bad bosses. I try not to interrupt you when you're on a roll like that. That was a beautiful. I didn't want to. I didn't want to mess up. I didn't want to mess up the sound bite by me talking on it because I'll use it later for for hyping the the, the class. Uh, first question of the night coming out. Westbrook says, "How do you motivate those that used to be, but are no longer because of bad interaction? Because of what you're talking about, how do you fire them back up?" <laughs> That's not an easy man. nothing I like better than a team of misfits, man. You know, you got to look, you got to look for those sleepers. And, uh, you know, if you have any say so on your cruise, man, find those people then and identify them and just invite them in, just invite them into your circle, you know, let them play ball on your team. You know, if they're at another station, then, you know, find out what makes them tick. Uh, I remember I had a guy, that uh, I got a guy in my battalion who was a uh, he was a lieutenant at training, and we had a major budget cut, and he ended up getting demoted because they did away with positions. Had nothing to do with his performance, and so one of the things that he was doing was like the drivers' training, and he was doing some hose training and all that stuff. So the first day he was there, I went to him and I was like, man. Oh, sorry. You got a raw deal, man. You know, um, you worked hard and you made Lieutenant and then now you're back as a driver, but I'm, I'm glad to have you. And as a matter of fact, it's coming up on our yearly time for us to do our host training. Are you interested at all in like heading that up for me? You know, so immediately I'm trying to get him in the game. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds corny, but back to back, back, Back to one of the old 80s classics, Top Gun, you know, Goose dies uh, in an accident. Maverick doesn't want to fly anymore. And what is what do they say? 
Get him up. Get him back get in him the flying. Air. Get him back in the yeah. air. Yeah. He, he won't engage. He won't engage. Get him back up. I want him back up there flying. So, you know, you gotta you gotta welcome people in and find find something. What was their passion? You know, was it elevators? Was it hose? Was it engines or whatever? And go ask them some questions about it. Start up a discussion and then slowly bring them in. You know, slowly bring them in with that little carrot. You know, you don't have they don't have to know what you're doing, but but man, people want to be valued and people want to contribute more so than they want to just be a slug. And you got to find out what their value is. Uh, you know, uh, even, you know, I've been at some firehouses with, with 12, 15 people and, you know, somebody's always the cook. Somebody's always the go-to guy for this. And, and the cook, you know, may or may not be like the best go-to guy on the fire ground or whatever, but guess what? He's appreciated for his skills and his contributions, you know, to, to the team. Um, in some cases it may be your best, your, your best guy on the fire ground is, is the cook or what have you, but, um, find out what people can contribute and then let them freaking contribute it. Love it. That's where people get, that's where people get, hung up is they're not allowed to do the thing i've heard it so many times man we got great guys but we just don't utilize them freaking utilize them say yes say freaking yes when they say hey i was thinking about doing this all right what what, how can i help you what can i do to to help you love it you know know, Ah, find the junkyard with the cars find the junkyards with the cars to cut up, go to home Depot, get the surplus doors that are damaged. So you can build a door, whatever it is, you can support them. And especially like a battalion chief, man, that's your job. That's your job is to provide support to those company officers, not just to tell them what to do every day, find out what makes them tick, get them engaged and get them moving. Um, And I know everybody knows this, the slowest stations, or the last ones to have their reports done, the last ones to have their hydrants done, the last ones to have their building inspections done, the stations that are running 20, 25 calls a day, first ones to have their hydrants mm. done. How do they have time to do it, man? It's because they got momentum. They're moving. They're not stagnant. They're not on life support, sitting there, you know, watching the same old movies every day, Jerry Springer. So <laughs> get people moving, get them moving. Battalion training, dispatch them to one station and do a ladder drill. Just get, just get people moving, man. It's not so important exactly what they're doing, but build some momentum. Love it, man. You're on a roll, chief. You're on a roll, chief. You're bringing it, man. I love it. Uh, Another question coming at you. A few years back, our full-time staff and command staff had a sit down with our chief to clear the air about some issues. Now, this is coming from Jim Platt. He said, he quickly took it as a personal attack, not a professional intervention. How do we, the fire service, do this without it becoming personal and stay professional? Well, the main way is to not ever let it get to that level where you got to have a special meeting. Um, Anytime it goes formal, it's not going to be super productive. Um, I definitely learned this as a union president with like our city council. If I went, if the first time the council heard about my issue was when I made remarks in the public comments, then I pissed a lot of people off because they felt like they were blindsided with stuff. 
So I had to learn how the system works. The system works where you find people away from that environment or either you schedule a meeting with them in their office one-on-one so you can be candid and frank and you can go through the issues and you give them pre-warning. So somebody needs to be talking to that fire chief, uh, whatever. And I know it's hard because, you know, people love yes men. They love to appoint people that, you know, do this all the time. But you need to you need to have have that chief's ear, man. Uh, When's uh, uh, when's the last time that the the person who asked the question invited that fire chief to dinner at the firehouse? Right. You know, invite that fire chief to dinner at the firehouse. Don't attack him. Man, it's hard being a fire chief. It's hard being a fire chief. There's some great ones and there's some bad ones, just like everything else. Get him to your station. Sit down at the best place in the world to negotiate peace treaties as the firehouse kitchen table. Cook a great meal. Don't even talk about anything except the meal and some calls you've been on until you get dinner finished. And then, you know, pour the coffee, uh, whatever it is, and sit there and start talking. And, you know, you can't just you can't just go in on full attack and and the younger you are the more passionate you are the <laughs> no more doubt. you go in on full attack because you can't help it but you got to ease your way in you, you know you're like chief you know tell us how, what you know what's your what's your background how did you come up and what were the problems when you were a firefighter and then you know what he's going to say everything that's going on in your organization right now he just doesn't see it and then you're going to be like well you know what chief we're experiencing those same things today you know so I love it, man. It's solid, solid, solid advice. Some, gotta, yes, go ahead. Some people are going to take everything personal, and that's just their personality. But more people are going to be defensive if you're in a room with 10 people telling you everything that's wrong with what you're doing uh, versus that one-on-one time at the station, that time after a call or whatever. If it goes formal, it's just like going to the council meeting and asking for something, and it's the first time that they've heard it. So, you know, send them emails, tell them you want to talk. Uh, everybody says they have an open door policy. Go talk, but, uh, you know, bring a couple solutions with you to the problem. They might not be feasible, but at least you're not just in there complaining because uh, everybody hates the guy that just complains all the time. Yeah. Even even if it's a great guy, you know, and you're just, oh, this sucks. This is, this is horrible. You know, you just get you get down on everything. So. Do the old trick. Uh, everything is about relationships. Love so it. you got to build a relationship with that fire chief. You got to build a relationship with the deputy chief. You got to build relationships with everybody. And, and one way to do that is invite them into your firehouse. I love it, man. That's beautiful. Beautiful relationships and and keeping it out of becoming formal. The first time they hear about it, it's formal. I, I just sit here repeating what you say because you got me fired up. Um <laughs> I love it. Okay. Now then, we're already at one hour tonight. We are, I don't know how much actual conversation we had the first time we went around, but uh, do you want to cover a couple more topics? Should we throw, start moving on? Sure. Okay. Whatever Whatever you got, man. I, I want to hear good. about FDIC hot, man. FDIC. I know you just came back from Indy getting ready, just getting ready, but talk to me about yeah. FDIC and the, the hands-on training. So uh, it is a beast. Um we're at around 27 classes. 
of hands-on training, which is unheard of for any conference. It is just un- incredible the amount of commitment that FDIC puts into the hands-on training. Um, contrary to some popular belief, it does not make money. Uh, the hands-on training is a investment in firefighters training. Um, we try our best to, to minimize the loss, of course, because it is a business. Uh, the conference, of course, makes money. That's what it's, you know, it's a trade show and it makes money. But the hands-on training part, um, all the way back to its inception uh, with Bill Manning and the four or five classes that were taught in the in the parking lot, they called it Hot Tuesday or something like that, uh, that first time. And everything was right there in the parking lot. Um, and then it started expanding a little bit, expanding. And so, you know, to make that work, it takes an army. And uh, there's a there's a full group of local uh, folks. Uh, I think there's probably like 30 or 40 people on the local planning team uh, from all the townships. And then, of course, Indianapolis. Uh, but you got Wayne, Lawrence, Pike, uh, Decatur, um fishers and the list just goes on there's probably 20 departments involved in 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 fdic and uh just the hot just the hot itself um, we put together a logistics team that ends up being about 30 35 uh folks that are just making deliveries driving trucks dropping off supplies supply run set up yeah yeah. And, and, you, and now we're, 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 we're training as far as, you know, 30, 40 miles out of the city. And so um, just think, you know, you call in on the radio and you, and you need a couple extra saw blades for the afternoon. Um, you know, that may be a two and a half hour round trip, you know, for that guy to get in that truck and, and, and go. So it was a lot of coordination. Um, we also have to deliver food to the sites. So we're delivering box lunches to the sites. You know, those lunches get into us about nine o'clock every morning. They have to be sorted by class, by numbers, and then turned around. So it is pretty much a uh, 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 a 10-month operation. I'd say we get about two months of, uh, of downtime, and then we're, then we're right back right at back it. Right back to planning. Um, the instructors are fantastic. The instructors are phenomenal. I mean, just a just a great group of guys. We always look forward to seeing them um, when they come in, and we're always looking for new instructors too. Uh, one of the questions I get all the time is like, you know, well, how how can I get a hot class? Well, you need to design a hot class for FDIC. Um, it's very hard to take your class that you're teaching all the time to. 20, 25 students and bring it to FDIC because you're teaching it for 16 hours. And we go, okay, well, you got four hours and you're going to have 50 students. Oh, wow. And you're like, oh, you know, and you're like, well, I need 38 instructors. <laughs> you right. know, and you're like, no. So, so there's a balance of, of, uh, of how you make it to where it works for the conference. And uh, remember, it's the instructor conference. That's one thing people forget. It's kind of become the, the fire service conference. It's a fire department instructor conference. So nothing pleases me more than to see a proposal that is teaching people how to teach. Beautiful. You know, um, it's, it's one thing to teach a, teach a class, but the intent is to train instructors, not just at a fire conference. That's the whole, 
the whole purpose of it, even when you're proposing a classroom or whatever, is like, how is an instructor going to use this? You know, is it just new, new information that I'm putting out there? something new or am I teaching almost like a train the trainer, right? You know, that's a buzzword. Everybody wants to take the train, the trainer, train the course, trainer right? Yeah. So uh, that's stuff that we want to see, you know, a lot more of, Beautiful. but we'll, we'll see about 3000, 3000 a day, I guess, students in hot, you know, buses, we have to bus them to the site. We have to do, do everything. So uh, Ted Moore um, is my right hand man out there from Wayne township as a battalion chief. And he, is on site locally. So he's the person that gets, you know, when an instructor puts in that they need, you know, 12 steel doors and, and $5,000 worth of lumber and all that. You just multiply that by 27 classes and all. And he's actually on the ground getting all that stuff to our warehouse and our yard so that we can get it delivered uh, in a very short window. We, we start, delivering like on thursday and friday the guys start setting up on saturday and sunday hot as monday tuesday we pick everything up tuesday afternoon and wednesday and a lot of that stuff has to go back to the district the uh exhibitors and this year we're up um just not the stuff that we own or that we are buying for the conference but there's 3.7 million dollars worth of equipment that comes through us to get distributed out to the guys. Wow. That does not include, that does not include all the local fire engines and fire trucks and staff and all that stuff. That is just products, simulators, uh, air packs, um, smoke machines, you name it. It's, it's all coming in from the, the vendors. I think there's a mannequin that the, uh, that the uh, active shooter class is using that's something like 65 grand oh, wow. for that mannequin. Holy crap. What's that? <laughs> they got a couple of, yeah. Does it oh, walk around it, on it its own? Links, and... It moves. Oh, wow. No, but it, uh, it, it moves and it reacts. Uh, you actually inject uh, drugs and it knows if it's the right dose and it's unreal. So oh, it's wow. a computer and it takes like a team team to run it, but it comes from the military. So it's pretty, pretty high speed. Stuff. No doubt, man. Okay, that's awesome. All right, I lo- um, I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw at you incident command. One of the last topics, incident command, sexy topic. I will say that incident command. So, Chief David Rose, what do you have to say about incident command? If all you do for incident command is have your folks take the uh, NIMS classes, you're not teaching them how to manage a fire. Beautiful. Um, they're, they're not bad classes. Obviously, they're good theory. They're good structure. Um, I definitely am totally into the the whole type one, type two, type three command team um, stuff. And that's definitely missing in a lot of departments, the knowledge of how to run those big prolonged incidents. But just just doing NIMS does not teach you anything about how to manage a fire. Um, so you need specific training in, in how to manage the, the type four, type five incidents. Um, and you need a lot of repetition. Um, we talked about the simulation uh, stuff. That's really the only, only way to get a lot of rep- repetition in. Uh, because you can't just go out and burn houses all the time. But what you can do is you can integrate command into the stuff you're doing. So 
let's say you're running recruit school drills. Um, can't there be a battalion chief there running command at the same time? You know, let the battalion chief run it like it's a fire. Nice. Uh, practice, 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 practice. I had a fire chief one time. He came to me when I was kind of the command guru uh, after after some of the some of the others had retired and stuff. That was sort of my thing. And he said, how do we increase our command presence? And I said, well, we got to train our incident commanders. Right. If you want to increase your command presence, we got to, we got to train them and get them practicing and get them used to it and all. And unfortunately he said, well, let me tell you what I've done. I've ordered all the chiefs white turnout gear. To increase the command. Presence. And I said, <laughs> I said, I said, chief, that increases the command appearance, appearance. <laughs> not the command presence. So again, back to the t-shirts. I love it. It's all about what you're wearing, you know? And, uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous, uh, uh, subject. There's not a lot out there other than, uh, you got blue card, um, which is a pretty popular, uh, system. And, uh, you know, I've heard, I know the guys, uh, I, I think it's phenomenal, but you get mixed, you know, ah, oh, we did blue card and it screwed us all up. Well, blue card gives you the concept and they even tell you right in the, right in the paperwork. It's like build your own scenarios and make it your own system. When you take it back, when you take the train, the trainer class, you can't just take Phoenix's pictures and, and put them in Atlanta or, or Charleston or, or Boston, you know, it was developed for their, their system. The concept is, is the same across command. They're, they're teaching you a concept. They're teaching you how to think and how to manage an incident. Um, but if all you do is take the can program and use their exact terminology and it's not your top terminology, then of course you're, you're setting it up to fail. So again, it depends on, <laughs> You can't just have a person running the simulation that's going to say 10-4 after you make every decision, good or bad. So um, I love doing fire simulations. We got a – me and uh, uh, my, my training partner there, Brent Hollander, we're going out to Somerville, South Carolina, to do three days of it with their company officers. And we're going to put each one of their company officers through probably more fires than they will have in 10 years, each one of them. Right on. And so we're going to be developing and we record it. We record it so that they can have it. They can, they can critique themselves after we awesome. leave and they can, they can listen, least listen to themselves. And what you find is you think a lot more than you say when you're in command. And so when you actually have the tape of yourself, then you're like, Oh, well, I thought I, I thought I told them to search. I was wildly unclear. No, you never assigned it. Locally, yeah. No, yeah, you never assigned it. <clears throat> and That's so awesome. uh, it's invaluable. But you got to get in the and to borrow the blue card, blue card term, you got to get the sets and reps in, or you're never going to be good at it. And I've seen it succeed. Uh, we did it in Atlanta. That's that's how I started doing it was uh, me and Brent uh, put these simulations together. And, again, we always had it where we could change it to match whatever you did. But we took uh, a couple of guys that were just horrible on the radio, very nervous and stuff. And by taking our time with them, you know, we didn't turn them into the greatest 
incident commanders or company officers first do folks that they were, but we got them to where they were comfortable and could function. And our goal was, man, if we can get them to do a good size up and get the first line, dude, success. They don't have to be able to run it all the way till the chief gets there. If right. they can just do that initial two or three minutes yes. and make those decisions, then we're going to be golden. And they did. They end, All of them ended up getting promoted. Well, it's right back to your quote from Patton earlier. Uh, a, good qu- a good plan violently executed now is better than a perfect plan next week. I mean, you're tired. Ah, right I didn't to- say that was – I didn't say that was from Patton, so you are uh, astute on oh, your reading. Sorry. No, I do. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of it. It was from Patton. Yes, sir. But uh, absolutely. And so, and then uh, Smoothbore Cartel chimed in and said, ICs are just like babies. When babies are hungry, they cry. Feed the IC information, and he will not cry so much on the radio. So. Oh, that's that's a good one. I mean, uh, you're only as good as the company officer. So you need to spend a lot of time on the front end training those company officers. What is it you need to know? Beautiful. What is it? Uh, and you have to also tell those folks what you don't need to know. Oh, that's just, you know, yeah. I love, that's huge. I, I watched an, watched an academy class and, you know, they were doing a search class and, uh, you know, the guy goes in and he's like, I'm feeling the wall. I'm moving to the right. I've moved five feet. I, I got a window. I got a corner. I got a, and they're just talking so freaking much. You can't even think man. Right. And, and it's confusing. It's like, Hey man, you don't have to talk that much. Just, you know, take a breath. And the other thing is you have to be patient because if you give, if you give a company assignment and uh, you know, you're like, Hey man, get a line to the third floor apartment and stuff. You can't turn around 30 seconds later and say, what's your progress? Right. I mean, you, you got to give them time to work. And there's nothing I know because I was a company officer. There's nothing worse than being asked a lot of questions. Oh, yeah. And you're trying to work and you're that's, like, there's a freaking radio. You that's know? when that radio has that malfunction when you're inside. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've you know, I've been there. I've done it a time or two. <laughs> All right. Done at a time or two. I love to repeat your message. It's garbled. (laughs) I love to ask the guests because I love reading book or books to suggest that you believe firefighters should be reading. Doesn't have to be fire related, but just what do you think firefighters should be reading? Uh, Well, probably top on my list would be uh, servant leadership uh, by Greenleaf. It's a big, thick, uh, book but greenleaf robert greenleaf there's actually a robert greenleaf uh foundation and society he passed away a long time ago but it's actually in in indy um it gives you the foundation for servant leadership and i tell everybody there's a reason they call it the fire service nice. it's a service we pro- we provide and uh um you know we're there to buy we're there to buy people another birthday, another anniversary. Uh, we're in the people business. Mm. And if you don't have that in you, then you're never going to get the rest of the stuff. Um, you know, you might have the baddest training company in the world and all that stuff, but if you're not doing it to make people better so that they can serve the people of the community, then you're doing it for your own ego or whatever it is that you're doing. Maybe you're doing it just to make money or whatever it is, but you've got to have that passion. You've got to understand that it's a service. So the servant leadership part is huge, whether you're paid 
uh, it doesn't matter if you're paid, you can still still be a servant leader and, you know, in the community and the best, the best community service while I'm on this horse, the best community service program that a fire department can have is the best trained, best equipped firefighters in the community. That is their community service because nobody else is there. There's only one fire department usually in each community. They don't get a choice of who they're going to call. They don't get to call the neighboring department or or whatever. They get whoever's on duty today uh, and the closest station. So if they're not the best trained, best equipped, then you're selling them short. Beautiful. Because they don't have they don't have a choice. You can get they got that. a choice on pretty much everything else, but they don't have a choice on who they get. On Jump on that call. horse. So that's the best community service there is. I love it. You can get on that horse anytime. Okay. Uh, yeah. Servant leadership. Another one. Um, Go. Servant leadership is one. Uh, another one of my favorites, and I, I'm, I'm not good with authors and titles and all. I, I read all this stuff, and it kind of goes into a gumbo, and right I don't on. know exactly where it all comes from. But um, – Man, what's the? You'll know the book. What's the Navy Seal that uh, extreme that, ownership uh, that wrote the book? You, you can't, you can't hurt me. Oh, okay, you yeah, can't Goggins. Hurt me. Goggins, Goggins. Yes. Oh, phenomenal story, phenomenal book. Uh, you know, and the thing is, it's like it's good to read, but that that book is like, get off your ass and go do yes. it. Yes, you know, it's like don't just keep reading about it get out there and do it, get out, whatever it is you want to do, get out there and do it, man. So that's another one of my, uh, one of my favorites. Um, of course I have to give, uh, Miss Judy a shout out. Um, she has a book that she wrote about smoke divers, what the, what the best firefighters in the world can teach you about leadership. And, uh, she basically has been sort of embedded with us at each class for gosh, I, I, I guess she's probably 10 years at least. And, uh, and she turned that into, into a book that's applicable to business. Uh, but, uh, it's just applicable to, to life. It's about how, how we run the smoke diver program. And, nice. uh, you know, that, um, is that the it's title? a good one. What the best one. Fire- she has several. What the best firefighters in the world can mm-hmm. teach you. Okay. About leadership. Okay. Yeah. What awesome. the best firefighters can teach you about. And it's Judy Glick Smith. Judy Glick Smith okay. um, is the author on that one. Um, I love all the military. The pat, I've probably read 20 patent books. Uh, um, they're great. And uh, um, just for fun reading stuff, man, I love anything Mark Twain wrote. Nice. Um, and also I like the short stories and and stuff too. Uh, the Boyd book. Um, uh, I think it's just called Boyd, the fighter pilot that changed the art of war. Right. And it is by, uh, Oh man. He was an AJC reporter, Gorham, Robert Gorham. Nice. Um, phenomenal. It's a phenomenal introduction into, into Boyd. It doesn't have all the, the papers that references them, but, uh, um, they're out there on the internet. Um, all, all the, all the essays, patterns of conflict and servant leadership. Uh, Greenleaf has a ton of essays too. And his book is all those essays put in together. And he even talks about, 
he talks about personal servant leadership. He talks about servant leadership as an organization, um, even and how how uh, these these big corporations, if they don't have a purpose other than just making money, that they don't they don't last. Right. So you got to have you got to have some purpose that you're there's a, there's got to be a reason you're making that money, you know. And that's a big you know that's a big sore subject with a lot of folks with all these all these companies that have these super wealthy CEOs that are <laughs> breaking the banks. The employees are making right 20 grand a year and they're making 16 million. Yeah, billion. So why are you making that 16 million or a billion or whatever? You know, what are you doing with it to make society better? Love you know, so solid, man. So yeah, those are good ones. Um, I don't know. Heck, uh, Brindisini command. It's a great one. Yeah, it's hard enough. Uh, just to get the basics. Yes. Yeah, just get the basics. Oh, and then uh, I haven't finished uh, reading it yet, um, but my my buddy out there at the colony, um, Scott Thompson, um, his his book, Scott Scott's new book is phenomenal. Functional Fire uh, Company. Um, Functional Fire Company. Oh, yes, definitely favorites. get that one. Yeah, get that one. That one's a good one, and uh, I like the uh, the uh, Nicholas Papa uh, ventilation book because he took a lot of the UL. Um, mm-hmm. stuff and and kind of explains it uh, uh, s- somewhat uh, science for dummies like me <laughs> sort of sort of like that but there's a lot of great it's just solely solely on ventilation so uh, it's pretty good yes. and for those uh, those fire chiefs that are looking for ventilation props I, and I teach this in the class every fire station should have either a Komodo Joe or a green egg because you can teach ventilation with those things. They're about a thousand dollar grill. Um, but every fire station should have one of those and you should be able to justify it in the budget as a ventilation simulator. As a training bottom prop. damper is the front. Yeah. Bottom damper is the front door. Top, top damper is the roof. You open the front door and you open the roof and you don't do anything else. And the grill gets as hot as it can possibly be. Shut the door, shut the roof. Temperatures go back down. It's a great training tool. Love it. And it cooks some great steaks. <laughs> nice steaks at the same time. I've never done the green egg, so I have to check it out. All right. Oh, man. Phenomenal. Chief David Rhodes, there's a thing. What you else do. we got? It's called the Five Questions for Firefighters. It's now known as the Next Five Questions for Firefighters. There are five questions <laughs> where there are no correct answers. The, the answers are completely your opinion, and the points are arbitrarily assigned by me. So. Chief right. David Rhodes, are you ready for the next five questions for firefighters? Ready. Okay. <laughs> Question number one. What single characteristic makes the difference between a run-of-the-mill firefighter and the top-tier go-to badass firefighter? Well, there's two. Uh, there's not one. Uh, character and competence character and competence are a must you have to know what you're doing and you have to have strong enough character not to screw people over uh not to step on folks to help folks along the way and if you have those then you're going to create trust and we've said relationships are the key to everything so that's going to allow you to have the relationships that are not only going to make you better, but it's going to make all the people around you better. Brother, that might be the character same. and competence, character and competence, build the relationships, build trust. And, and I don't think, 
uh, you could have melted it down any better. I give you max points 100% for being, A, super succinct and right to the point, like instantly, man. I love that answer. Absolutely love that answer. Number two, if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice as a rookie, what would it be? Uh, don't complain so much about stuff that you can't control. Mm. Um, golly, you know, I, I wanted to solve all the fire department problems early on and I should have just been focused on, on my station myself, uh, and not, not worried about the department as a whole. Cause it was too big of an elephant to eat. Uh, it caused a lot of indigestion, a lot of grief. And so, Man, just enjoy, enjoy what you can of the firefighter uh, life at the station and make your station the absolute best in your department. Don't worry about the rest of it for a while. Once you make chief, then it's a whole nother story. But just worry about your little bubble. It's beautiful, man. And here's the deal. I try really hard not to give people max points just because uh, they give good answers or a decent answer. One of my favorite books in the world is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So when you said don't complain so much, that's not, yeah. a, that's not a great answer. When you said don't complain so much about things outside of your control, dude, that just threw it into the stratosphere. 100%. Uh, control what you can control. I love that answer. Max points, 100%. Number three, what I'll flub one. I'll what, flub one in what, a minute. <laughs> we've talked a lot about what you like to do in training, but here we go. What is your favorite training drill? I think you kind of touched on them earlier, but go ahead. Favorite training deal, drill. You have to pick one. Oh, absolutely. The SCBA uh, drill that we talked about earlier. That is right now. That's, that's my favorite. Uh, as far as just something that, that you can put together. Now I love the fire attack search, the big, stuff we do at smoke divers but as far as just a drill you could do at the station or you could do anywhere is that get people proficient with the scba get them to where they can put that thing on in 20 30 seconds and be breathing air all suited up then start throwing in the kinks start throwing in the the bypasses are open the straps are tight there's stuff you know you don't have to time in a knot and all that stuff you don't have to get crazy with it but just create problems and then watch them master the sounds and the, and the stuff until, until they can go from a sabotaged air pack to fully ready to go in like 45 seconds. Maybe they can do it normally in 25 or 30, but if it's sabotaged, they, they can still recover. And that, that's what makes a good firefighter, right? Nobody does everything perfect. It's how you recover when something happens. that makes you, that makes you good. So man, I, I love that one. Pop it, pop it, do it every day. I don't think you could like half of this scrap has been your, 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 your philosophy on teaching and drilling. And, uh, I love you've already, you already answered this question before we even asked it. So you get max points on number three and I'm not trying to be soft on you, but that's the wizard. Literally that's the, the wizardry, the, the future site, but literally half the, half the scrap was about drilling. So how could you not, I think it'd be unfair. So, Number four, what mistake have you learned the most from in your fire service career? Um, not building those relationships with the, with the highest levels of the organization. Just, uh, you know, especially early on getting, getting frustrated, mad and not wanting to be around them, you know, the, the mucks and, uh, you know, 
not all of them were, were of great character and stuff, but I could have done a lot more to get to know them that would have helped both of us, you know? So I, especially when I was union president, um, you know, it was very adversarial. Um, I didn't want it to be adversarial, but I, you know, if somebody won't meet with you, they won't meet with you. So you got to do, do other means. But again, uh, playing all that out in public versus taking my own advice now that I gave a little while ago of trying to, you know, reach in the back door and, and establish some type of relationship. That would be the biggest is, uh, ignoring, like if you think of who you don't like in your department right now, and then just ignoring them, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. You need to put the effort in, try to build a relationship. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Then you can still say they're a piece of crap, but if you don't at least try, then you never really know. And, you got to think, man, at some point those folks were in the station, you know, and they were thinking like you, you hope. So you got to figure that out. So, so yeah, I, uh, I probably went on the attack a little bit too early, especially in my union, uh, union president days by going to the media. Um, but you know, it's all I had, it's all I had to do. I didn't know any better at the time. Sure. I was just a youngster. And you learned and you learned. So, yeah, absolutely. Love it, man. Number five, heavy fire and searchable space. Would you rather be assigned to the nozzle or first in on VES? Oh, VES. Easy answer. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I love I love my time on the truck, but uh, the hose is a boat anchor. Um, uh, there was nothing that pleased me more than jumping in there, getting in, and then whether we went through a window or a back door or whatever it was. And again, in my younger days, I love hearing them coming up to that front door, coming out of the black hell with my hook in my hand and grabbing that guy that was on the nozzle and go, Hey, follow me. It's back here. <laughs> Love it, man. And they're like, where did he come from? Where did he come from? Well, I already knocked out two bedrooms, and now I'm coming to get you so you can put out the fire. Love it, man. <laughs> so, it. yeah, I mean, that's just me. I'm the, and the thing is, I mean, that nozzle is so freaking important, but I just, it just, I like to be free. I like to be free and mobile. Again, it's kind of like small unit tactics versus, you know, bringing artillery. artillery. And you got to, if you got to lug that freaking cannon around, you got to have it. I mean, it, it, it makes the incident. You got to have it. It's like the most important piece, but I just didn't like having to, having to pull that boat anchor around the house. There is no wrong answer there, and but I love the passion of your answer, and I love VES, and so Max points on number five, and there it is. The next five questions for firefighters, according to Chief David Rhodes. So there it is in the books. Officially, it took two days and like four restarts, but officially we have 132 scraps in the books. Um, Chief, if someone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do so? Uh, get in touch with you or anything you want to plug or talk about? Yeah, man. Uh, Chief David Rhodes on uh, Facebook. Uh, you can uh, you can follow me there and send me a message. Uh, my email is Rhodes R H O D E S Consultants C O N S U L T A N T S uh, at gmail dot com. And uh, be glad to answer any questions, follow up, 
Uh, I think I'm on all the other stuff too, Instagram and all that, but I will literally tell you if I check, if I've checked a message on Instagram once, I may have checked it once, but, um, and just, uh, just go to the smoke diver website. My email's on there. You can contact me through there. Um, or phone a friend. Love it. <laughs> Love it. There it is. Uh, firehousevigilance.com. Go there. Support the scrap. Uh, all shirts and merch. The, 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 the new order of hats just shipped. They're supposed to be in by Saturday. So, uh, all the, sh- all the hats should be back in stock. We'll see what colors, uh, South Texas Professional Firefighters Conference, April 11th and 12th. It's the next place I'm going to be, Live Oak, Texas. It's going to be an amazing time. Uh, keynoting out the gate, emceeing and introducing everybody, but there's going to be a live scrap coming up on location there in Live Oak, Texas, interviewing everybody that's going to be there, which is uh, Todd Edwards, uh, Dennis Laguerre, Jacob Johnson, Mo Davis, uh, Clyde Gordon, Kyle Romagus, Howard Reinwalt. They're all going to be live and answering your questions. So that's going to be a good time. Uh, Chief David Rhodes officially closed out the scraps for March. And so coming up to kick off April, Mega Scrap Bravo, Jim McCormick, Basil Ibrahim, and Rob Ramirez doing nothing but talking about Mayday and Rit. And so I'm super excited for that. That's next Tuesday on the 5th. So that's everything. We officially got it done, Chief. We officially got it done. So thank you for being an awesome guest. Everybody out there, remember. Absolutely, man. It was fun. Thank you, sir. Remember, mutts don't scrap. I hope the tone stays silent. Unless it's burning, stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Scrap. Please subscribe and please share. We'll see you at the next episode.